All right, let's get it going. Episode number 42 of the Stephen Sersky Podcast. I'm Stephen Sersky. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, this episode was recorded on Wednesday, September 27th, 2023 in Beijing, China. Today, I have another uh, fellow expat joining me today in the studio, Brad Seipel, also known as Throughton, a an American-born electronic producer and multi-instrumentalist. He's been in China now for over 15 years and now runs his own studio here in Beijing. Uh, when he's not helping other people record and make their own music, uh, he is recording and producing his own work that he's also toured the world with. In this episode, uh, we do talk a little bit about what it's like to run a studio here in China, uh, some of the highlights of the work, and uh, how it has forced Brad to grow not only as a musician, but also as a business owner. Not only that, Brad is fluent in Mandarin Chinese, having learned the language largely on his own using the street method uh, after arriving here in the country in Ningbo, I think it was, way back in 2008. Uh, we talk about how he managed to learn the language, some of the struggles he's had, and then uh, what's kept him going all this time. And if you're wondering, just what does throughouten mean? Well, I asked Brad that right off the bat. And with that, let's get to it. Episode number 42 with Brad Seipel, also known as throughouten. Episode number 42, all right, uh, with Brad throughouten. That's correct. Uh, is that yeah. is your last name or... Uh... Uh, my last name is Seipel. Seipel, okay. Yeah, and the artist's name is Throughoutin. So I was uh, practicing this name because I was like, Throughoutin, Throughoutin, Throughoutin. I'm like, where is this from? And this is a MIDI reference. Right, you're correct. W well, you told me this. So <laughs> what, what, what is this? Uh, what's the reference? Uh, so when I got my first synthesizer, I was playing around with it and I like flipped over the backside and saw the uh inputs and outputs and all the things you can connect it to and there was this these these uh three circles uh for midi that said through out and in and then i started learning about well what midi was and all, all this uh stuff for making music and i down the line i had to pick an artist name when i was making these beats in my dorm room and i didn't have any name so i just looked at the synthesizer and wrote that as like a temporary name yeah and then it <laughs> then it stuck it's been there for 20 years since right then. right on. Mm -hmm. uh so you do you do a lot of midi stuff uh still or have you graduated to no. actual instruments i mean i use midi in a, in a lot of ways with synthesizers i connect all the hardware through midi to keep it all synced together yeah um and then in software i use a lot of midi instruments when i'm writing so virtual instruments vsts and these kind of plugins they all are based off midi as well so in music production, I'm still using MIDI after all this time. Do you play? You play the electronic pipa. This mm -hmm, is your correct. this is your big claim to fame. Uh, I'm not sure if the rest of China knows this, but uh, you're you're a pretty big deal in in this regard because you're you're one of very few people who does this. If like may, maybe one of a handful. Uh, I mean, your words, not mine. <laughs> uh, there are uh, so the pipa is the Chinese lute, and um, the version that I'm playing is is electrified version of that. And I play it in a more experimental way, uh, closer to how bass guitar or electric guitar would be played, but with some characteristics, some Chinese characteristics. What do you mean Chinese characteristics? The instrument is is uh, is is a for to put it simply is a mm, I would say an iconic Chinese instrument. Mm -hmm. So even though that you're playing maybe a Western style on it, there's some 
parts of the instrument that are just going to sound like what you might associate as a Chinese sound oh, okay. with it. So yeah, those are the, the uh, flavors that it has in a way. Have you taken any lessons? Not officially. I, have, I haven't had like a long-term pipa teacher. I've had friends that play the traditional pipa and they've given me some pointers and stuff. Yeah. And it's something I would like to do, but it's just time-based and yeah. How long would it take you to learn that? I mean, given that you've been playing for so long, like, is there a big difference between what you play and what like the grandmasters would be playing? I think it's uh, with any instrument. You, you learn it and play it for your whole life. Um, it's like any skill. Uh, I know that a lot of people here that uh, play pipa, they learn it at a very early age. They'll start anywhere between 6 to 10 years old. And, you know, by adulthood, they've they've mastered a lot of the techniques. So... Uh, the stuff that I kind of play on it, I can get away with it because of my background in yeah. stringed instruments. But to really learn the techniques, it's just about how much time I would put into it. I don't know. Uh, you could you could say if I worked really hard a, a few years, but there's a there's a couple of really uh, important techniques with the the way that it's played that um, kind of dictate your level. So one of them is the uh, tremolo. Uh, way of playing on your right hand or your dominant hand. So if you're familiar with flamenco music, that kind of dung 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 dung. I'm familiar with yeah. the tremolo <laughs> that appears on GarageBand when you can play pipa. So yeah, so so that is the same. It's a, like a, a movement of right. how it's how it's done. So in pipa, they have a similar uh, playing technique with the fingers and the the thumbs called uh, like wheel wheel fingers or lunger okay in um chinese and it's a it's a tremolo uh kind of uh effect so basically your your hand is in like a circular i'm not sure a circular way like this and you're you're pushing out on these fingers okay and then you're coming back on the thumb so it's kind of like that also using your fingernails the fingernails and pipa's traditionally played with uh stick on fingernails in the, oh, in the okay. ancient times they used animal bone and stuff like that to create a pick but uh, in modern day we use uh, 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 plastic fingernails and they're taped on with kind of like a band-aid right. plaster kind of sticker and uh, so that creates a really sharp sound and mm -hmm. and the tremolo or the lunger played on the the hand is a is like a basic technique of the pipa that's like once you get that it's your the next step is just maybe learning the standards and and then developing your own sound mm -hmm. so so yeah. is that same on the gujang? Gujang, gujang also uses a finger pick, but I believe they're uh, facing the other way, and I don't oh, think okay. it's the full hand. It might be on the the index and the middle and the thumb. Right. But I'm not a gujang player, so I don't really know. So then, what's the extent of the the tremolo that you can do? Um. Well, it's just it, it kind of creates this consistent note. So with. Uh, with uh, if you think about a long note like dung, right? A piano might make that sound with the hammer, or you might make a single note on a bass guitar, boom, mm -hmm. right? That creates a, a tail, but the tail eventually gets smaller on on the sound. Well, with with the lunger or the uh, the tremolo, it kind of just makes it consistent. Like uh, if if I was to mimic it with my voice, it'd be like like mm -hmm. a, a rolling R, and it just kind of creates this sixteenth or thirty second note that just uh, it sounds it's really iconic to the pipa. It's a its own uh, thing. When you hear that, you're like, okay, that's a pipa. So mm -hmm. for me, that's one thing I haven't perfected yet. And it's a, you know, if I was to study, it'd be something that I would 
uh, focus on. How do you compensate for that in your performance now? Like, or do you? So, um, so if I want to try and mimic it, uh, I'll use the kind of like opposite direction, which in bass guitar, uh, you do like kind of a walking uh, thing with your hand. Mm -hmm. And if you add your other fingers, you can you can make a similar sound. But instead of going out and in, you're you're pulling towards yourself. So and, you're doing it the opposite. Yeah, way. the opposite way. And and if you listen to like punk rock, uh, a lot of fast music, uh, if the bassist isn't playing a, with a pick, they're just doing these these quick sixteenth notes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it doesn't have to be punk. You could have it in any fast paced music. And um, so, by my background as a kid playing in bands and stuff, you know, I would see you know how fast I could go and. Um, that's just something I built up over time. So I'll, I'll do similar things on the people if I want to do a short burst of something quick like that. Mm -hmm. so. I don't think I've actually listened to any of your electronic people stuff because I've been. Uh, you you sent me this link to your right. Bandcamp, <laughs> and there are let's see how many rows: one, two, three, four, five, five rows of four. So there's 22 total mm -hmm. of albums. Is this all your work? This is not everything, but it's the majority of it. <laughs> of course, and, not. <laughs> because there's another library full of stuff. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of things and unreleased stuff. But uh, it's a good question because not every song that I make and not every album is is pipa based. Or right, has the pipa on it. So in some recordings, you might not even hear this technique that I'm describing. Uh, it might be playing more of a um, arpeggio or a a solo type way of doing it. Yeah. So the, the pipa is not present on every track, and on every track I'm not trying to make it sound exactly like a traditional instrument. Oh, okay. It might be there just for a melodic or solo type of uh, application. When, when I first heard that you played electronic uh, pipa through your girlfriend, my colleague, right. uh, that uh, she's like, yeah, my boyfriend plays electronic pipa. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I imagine that like that was your specialty and that you were hooking up distorted guitar, like pedals and mm -hmm. stuff, and that would be your main focus. But it sounds like it's more of a supplementation too. Right. music rather than like a focus of the music i think it's physically uh when you look at the instrument it's very attractive so it might be the first thing you you connect with but i would say production and like music and software and this sort of stuff is really what i'm focusing on and the other instruments that i add are to 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 do exactly that and to have supplemental things to the the music Mm -hmm. So when I play live, uh, I'll I usually bring some synths, uh, but I you know bring my pipa and um, a lot of people they focus on that part. So if you you know <laughs> it stands it, out, it stands out. <laughs> so uh, it's a it's a big part of what I've been doing since I came to China, but um, it's not the only thing in the music right uh, that that I use. So, how much stuff do you take with you? Because you actually play live. That's true. And you take everything with you. What's your kit like? Uh, I can't imagine it's fun to carry around. Um, I've tried to slim it down over the years, but uh, the brain of it is Ableton Live, so that's on the computer. I control okay. that with a MIDI controller, uh, Push 2. Um, so that's the, the samples and drums and all that stuff are, are controlled by a MIDI controller in Ableton Live. Okay. Then I have a sound card that uh, will output the sound of the computer's uh, uh, volume and all that and then for the virtual instruments i have a, a micro korg synthesizer it's a small uh transportable synth uh and then the pipa with its pedals there's a bunch of effects pedals okay <laughs> all of that stuff 
is routed into a mixer, a small mixer. So there's about um, six channels. And then I give that to the, the sound person. Okay. So uh, it's, it can fit on like a two meter table, but uh, it's, that's my slim down version. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's the full kit? The full kit is might be an, you know it might be an extra synthesizer. It might be another row of pedals for the synth. Um, it might be a drum pad. Uh, it's it's really how I'm feeling because every every show I might bring something different. Mm-hmm. But for touring, I, I want to be able to fit everything in a suitcase and a backpack. And how big is the yeah, suitcase? Your your normal like okay. you can go in the <laughs> in the hull uh, of an airplane. Okay. Yeah. Stuff that I can you know not be too fussy about if it if it gets damage you're like i can put all my clothes and cables there yeah and then the more expensive stuff like my computer and people i can bring on the plane okay so i try to be pretty compact but i could actually you know just tour with a a computer by itself but i like to have something people can see and connect with when i'm playing and believe that you're actually playing the instruments not just pressing play on an mp3 right (laughs) which i'm not gonna lie i am slowly moving towards i i think uh I, i don't know there is this commercial that happened you're from the states maybe uh you remember this there is some tv commercial where this guy this dj was had like a bouncing party and everything people are popping all over the place and all he was doing was pressing uh, an mp3 button and i was like that that is like my future basically because i i think all the great ideas that you can mix them together but then live there's a different element to it and i i don't i kind of like the uh, having it consistent all the time at least in terms when it when it's re, uh electronically recorded and digital and stuff like that. I, I don't know. Is this, do you think that's the future? Or? I think the, <laughs> the future is now because uh, as far as DJing, uh, I'm a big proponent, a big fan of the USB drive. Yeah. Um, you can put several hours of music and um, I would love to do a tour where I just bring <laughs> that and a backpack with a couple changes of clothes. Yeah. I don't have to break my back carrying gear. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with playing MP3s, especially if you're DJing. That's what I would say 90% of people are doing. Yeah. Um, it's the selection and the taste of the music and how you read the crowd. And that's the important thing. It's not really the gear you're using. But if you're, so following that, if you're doing MP3 mixing, uh, or DJing, are you mixing the individual tracks at that point, you think, or is it you've created the whole track and you're just pressing play and then putting the, the show on sort of thing? It, it depends on how you decide to organize your DJ set. Okay. Um, there's a bunch of schools of thought on how it should be done. Some people <laughs> think you should be you should be playing you know the songs interconnectedly and making these new creations. Um, and some people think it should be you know this song to that song back to back. I'm somewhere in between. I like to create loops. Like okay. if there's a cool drum loop in a song, I'll I'll loop it and then I'll bring in the next one and kind of for you know. 30 seconds between the two songs, create a new song with the, the both of them. Mm-hmm. And then some, yeah, some DJ uh, mixers will have effects built in reverbs and delays and echoes and just kind of you're using music that's already created and already done, but gluing it together in a different way. And has not, this, that, that part hasn't right. been done yet. Okay. So for me, that makes DJing more interesting. And there's no shame in doing it in any way you're doing it as long as you're having fun number one and then you're you're entertaining you know the people that you're you're there to to party with basically so, so the big names like hardwell timmy trumpet uh those guys martin garrix what would they be doing uh well this is like edm right yeah. so um in the edm world it's it's very it's entertainment it's very much a show so uh 
uh, trumpet is he's I don't know if he's actually playing it but the videos and stuff I've seen of him he's he's out there he's getting people uh interested he's standing up on the on the table and um adding a again adding a live aspect to his DJ set mm -hmm. so um with some of these festivals they want a bit of security in case something goes wrong you know so sometimes there's a set that's prepared in advance okay so you might have a two and a half hour uh dj set that that might be pretty ironclad there might be some transitions that they're doing um but my experience working with uh, as a ghostwriter for for edm artist no uh, way okay while back <laughs> um it's an, another story but they wanted as much prepared in, in, in advance so it was down to like each song of the DJ set had to be kind of approved by the manager. Yeah. And um, uh, when you get to that level, you just you are really relying on uh, nothing going wrong. There's no margin for error, especially in, in you know, uh, big festivals in Europe and North America. Uh, you you don't get too many chances mm -hmm. and it should be that anywhere. Uh, you should always give your best when you go out. But uh, so. I don't know how much they're doing like on the fly with these these larger EDM artists, but a lot is a, a, I would say a lot is prepared, uh, and the transitions are very thought through. Right, right. Uh, so it's sort of like A, B, C, and then you're just kind of pressing, like dialing them in as you need to, sort of thing. Right. Maybe, you wanna, maybe controlling the faders. Faders. Um, uh, not to say that these people aren't choosing their own songs. Right. Like creative stuff isn't yeah. happening on their end, but they're having they're like i said they're entertainers they're they're wanting to get the crowd hyped uh i mean if we go into like even like steve aoki he's got a lot of things he does to keep the crowd entertained and um when you're doing that and working with transitions and stuff they're two different worlds so yeah. a lot of people will have someone else kind of controlling that or they're they're just really focusing on the music and mm -hmm. you know if you watch a boiler room set or you watch some festival djs um, it might be a little bit different than what the the top ten EDM DJs might be doing on their their big room, uh, big stadium right. shows. Hmm. Uh, it just makes a lot more sense to keep things more secure. What were you doing as a ghostwriter? Okay, so <laughs> this sounds uh, fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a long story, but um, uh, about two years ago, a friend of mine recommended me to this manager who said that they were. Uh, they were wanting to do an EDM project. And a lot of times in China, when people say the word EDM, they just mean any electronic music. Yeah. And so I kind of, uh, throughout, throughout their first conversation, I was, he kept using the word EDM. And I'm like, oh, he means like, you know, just like club music or electronic music. Yeah. So I just wanted to verify. I was like, you mean EDM as in the genre? With, and yeah. he was like, yes. <laughs> and so he showed me some references and I was like, okay, so... Uh, I showed him my music and what I was capable of. I was like, so you know that I, none, of, none of the music I do is EDM. And he's like, yeah, but I think, <laughs> I think you really uh, can bridge one gap because the DJ is a pipa player. Oh, okay. And she went to this conservatory. And so she's properly she's, trained she's, in everything. She's a proper uh, pipa player. And they wanted to promote her as a China 100 DJ, you know, right. cute girl on the stage. And and they they were they had this whole um, uh, kind of I don't know agenda of how they wanted to present her, but they didn't have the music part of it. So <laughs> kind of a big part of it. Yeah, and so I was hired basically to write a few originals for her, 
um, and record some of the pipa that she played and put it into those originals, and then prepare three DJ sets. One was a festival set, one was a small club set, and one was like a big room, right. trancey kind of set. So I went through a few months of just educating myself on EDM, and you know it's not just uh, it's not one genre actually, and and this was even two years ago. There was a blend of kind of what happened with dubstep becoming the American bro step that okay. that merged in with its EDM. Then you had like the trancier side of it, the Europeans like doing their more uh, trance and house. And then you have the commercial stuff like anytime Taylor Swift or Adele or Bieber are going to come out with a song, they're going to make sure that there's a EDM Someone doing an EDM version of it. Right, like a cover version, I guess? A cover or a, yes, like a, an edit. They would call them the radio edit or club edit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Club so, edit, that's typically yeah, what they used. Right. Or extended. Extended edit is another one they would use. and It's, it's just longer. So I, I, I started to realize that e- even EDM as a, a genre in, when I was familiar with it, in like 2014, in 2020, 2021, there was a lot of th- kinds of EDM. Yeah. And they wanted to have three different sets of that. So um, this artist had a DJ teacher at a school in Wangjing. Really? Yeah. Wow. So she would go every week and learn how to DJ, starting from zero. So I had this kind of, this DJ teacher and this manager uh, giving me reports every week of like what where she was. And then I would send them <laughs> the music, uh, at least an hour and a half of music for right. each set. Then they would pick through and say, we like this one, we don't like that one, we like this one, we don't like that one. And then on top of that, they would come to the studio and we'd work on the original and uh, the original tracks that she would play. So so her sets were going to be like, uh, she'd DJ for a bit and then she'd put on this pipa and like kind of, I, I never saw the set, so I don't know if she actually ever did it, but kind of fake play right. to the track. And then people would be like, wow, this is going on. And then she would back and, you know, do it. But... Um, so I did my part of it and then I left the project, so I never got to really see it, but, um, that was my experience as a ghostwriter for an EDM artist. Can I ask who it was? Do do you know? Um, so this, this was another, like, well, this was a sort of aggravating thing about it. I don't know if they went with this name in the end. Okay. But I asked the the manager, I was like, so what's, what's going to be the name? Is she going to use her Chinese name or have a stage name? And they're like, we're thinking... Enya. And I was like, by the way, um, you might just want to Google that. <laughs> because there's a pretty famous, you know, new age and ambient uh, pop artist named Enya. She's been around for a while. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but it's okay. It's China. It doesn't matter. Uh, so to an I don't, extent, I guess. I don't know what they went with eventually, but. Right. Oh, um, so funny. Yeah. It was. Did you hear any of the final project, the uh, final parts that they chose? No, I mean, it, it was, in the end, it was a, a bit of a stressful project because of all the, the edits, and, and I gave them a pretty fair price. So by the end of it, I was a little annoyed with the project. So right. um, there was one point when they invited me to go out to, like, a, a practice of it at one of the gong tea clubs. Yeah. But it was, like, going to start at, like, 3 in the morning or oh, something. yeah. And I wasn't being paid, and I was just like, yeah. I don't know. It's it's one of those things. I was I was hired to do it, but I wasn't hired to be their their friends. Right. And and it got to that point in it where this the project wasn't fun, and I 
I had done what was expected of me, so then I left the project. Can I ask how much ghost writers get paid in general? Not. I should have asked for a lot more. But oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're not going to retire off of that money anytime no, soon. No. And, um, you know, that's that's why having a maybe having an agency or a manager is good. Uh, for me, it was a learning experience. Yeah. And, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was it was fun to know, and I, I learned. Uh, there's there's a lot to IDM, uh, EDM, not IDM. That's a different different yeah. story. <laughs> But um, but there's a lot to EDM and there's there's no shade I want to throw on the genre because I do like it and there's some cool concepts in there and it's it's a big genre, so um, yeah, I, I listen fun. to EDM quite a bit actually and I yeah. know one guy uh, he was just at Creamfields Beijing where Timmy Trumpet played yeah uh, and then he also went to Japan last week for Ultra Japan and I was supposed to go but my plans didn't work out so I'm a little bit miffed that I didn't go uh, but uh, he actually I'm surprised because he's a bit of an an older guy, he's uh, in his fifties or so, uh, but he bounces around the room. He he gets into it. He he doesn't drink. He's not on right. drugs. Nothing. He's just like fuck. I'm gonna do it, man. I'm gonna love it, man. And he mm -hmm. does this EDM dance club stuff. Yeah. He will ask, "Hey, Steve, do you want to go?" And I'm like, "Well, what time?" He's like, "Well, yeah, you know, the show starts at 12. I'm like, "P.M. or A.M.?" He's like, "Well, midnight." I'm like, mm -hmm. "No, I'm in bed, dude. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I, I don't know what 3 a.m. starts." Even your shows start very late, don't they? I, don't, I mean, I mean, I don't mind a, a later show if I I plan for it. If right. if that's my uh, my next day is not busy, um, I don't I don't mind it starting at midnight and coming home at like uh, five or six in the morning. If that's if I if I'm able to allocate my time, right? If I have to work at eight o'clock the next day, then I mean maybe maybe ten years ago I would I would risk it, but. No, I still I'm not one of those people that wants to be grumpy and stay at home and be really against live music or DJs. And I'm still not at that point in my life. I don't know <laughs> if I ever will be. But I, I just think that you have to to decide if you're committed to, to wanting to do it. I've always sort of wondered, like even when I was playing in rock bands and stuff like that, the whole idea of like the headliner. I remember towards the, sort of the later parts, like uh, 2003, 2004, people would say, well, if we're going to headline, we want to play at like 9.30 or 10. And then they'd be done by 11.30 or 11. They wanted to go home. They're like, we don't want to be playing to an empty bar at 2 o'clock. We don't like we don't need to extend this evening any longer than it has to be. Uh, I remember hearing stories uh, that, you know, back in the day, it used to, live shows used to start at 7. Mm -hmm. And you'd be home at 10, 10.30. Yeah. And I think China still goes by that. Like, I think the Creamfields was over at 10, 10.30 or something like that. You can catch the last two subways home. Yeah. It's, it's nice. I, I kind of like it. I don't know. I mean, maybe I am in that part of my life where I'm like, nah, nah. If, if it's past 9.30, forget it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, totally just based on your personal habits and stuff. Uh, I feel that you, back to what you were saying about headliners. In uh, in America, at least, the headliner is the last band. Yeah, uh, you might have a couple openers, at least two bands, but three is usually the sweet spot. And the last band might be done by midnight yeah. at the latest. In China, I've found that the headliner is because of maybe this subway problem you're talking about, um, that the headliner is put second. So you usually yeah. get uh, uh, a support band the headliner and then another clean band that clean was, up crew yeah clean up <laughs> bands um so the, the china headliner is usually second oh, okay um, that's good info and 
I've heard, I haven't been to Japan, but I've heard that that's also a case there because a lot of people are trying to get the subway home. Yeah. Beijing doesn't have a 24-hour subway, so it's a similar situation for a lot of students that are trying to save money, or people who don't live near. So, and the um, buses don't make the same routes that the uh, the subways do, right? Because there is a night bus, night mm-hmm. bus route, but uh, it's not as, uh, I guess, not not as you not, not as widespread as the subway. Exactly. Yeah, there are a couple night buses in Beijing. When I lived out in East Beijing, yeah. if I was in the city, uh, I might take the night bus back home sometimes to a closer spot and then call a taxi. Right. Okay. So I think that's why the 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 shows, especially rock shows. Um, places like venues they're gonna end a little bit earlier and the clubs uh i find that it really starts to get hopping around midnight and yeah yeah, one (laughs) and there's a couple venues that that uh, i like uh groundless factory in beijing okay where's Um, that it's out in east beijing as well like north of dalianpo and the airport okay Uh, it's in a like a business complex so at night there's no neighbors or anything Right. So it's it's like its own it's its own little place. So once you're there, it's kind of you're committed. Uh, I, every time I've been there, it's like you can you can stay till like the sun comes up. Mm-hmm. A lot but, of people go there. Go um, yeah, and it's a little more on the the underground club scene. Okay. It's a big warehouse venue, um, LGBTQ plus friendly. A lot of how would they know? I, I see how some of those people dress. I mean, everyone's fitting in anywhere. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> not that not that it's. Uh, the the dress would define it but it's you can tell it's a there's a there's a uh, a younger crowd as well yeah but it's it's not something you might see in gongti at those clubs well gongti yeah. goes for a little bit more of the yeah. mainstream route and stuff like that have they opened any clubs in gongti yet because uh, mix and the other one that was there i stopped going to clubs years mix. ago man i don't yeah. do it anymore no i mean i was never really too knowledgeable i know those two that you mentioned there was a there was a african bar called underground for a while yeah I, re- and... I think i remember that one i was there one time i'm like i don't need to be here I'm right like, <laughs> it was they did a lot of karaoke stuff and i was just like yeah this is too late for me anyway yeah. so <laughs> um yeah i went that was the last time i was in gongti there was a um, south african national day dj oh, okay. night and they were playing this genre called ama piano okay it's like fr- a, a house music from uh, south africa yeah and um, that was the last time i was there i think i wound up going home like two or three so still you know, pretty late for most people. Yeah. I I don't miss being out all night. I used to in my early days in China. Uh, since then, I kind of like being up at 6 o'clock, 6.30, or at least having the alarm going off and knowing that my alarm went off sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, staying out all night. So I then again, I have no sort of desire to be performing live, like in the same situation as you, whereas you're, you're like, you know, if that's what the bar or the club requires or requests i mean you might have to oblige them but right. i don't know i kind of i would almost kind of hope that live music would start earlier just so more people can so i can not be out so late <laughs> well that's why you might like ambient music um the ambient shows the ones that i really like they start at like uh seven maybe sometimes five in the afternoon on a sunday yeah, those shows usually don't go very long right but then that's just playing an mp3 well, um, <laughs> it depends on the artist. Uh, how, how many people did I just offend with that? <laughs> <laughs> there's pro- I mean, there's probably like some MP3 ambient DJs. I know that there's a lot of uh, uh, shows popping up around Beijing where it's just ambient nights and mm-hmm. their DJs playing. Um, 
but it really depends on the artist. Some some might use just software. Some might play an MP3, like you said. Some might use hardware synthesizers. It really depends on the artist. Yeah, I've basically gone down to an iPad. I was a. Uh, I actually have a. I don't know if you saw my complete control board back there. That's still in the box, oh, wow. uh, and it's been there for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm probably going to add to that this year with the Machina uh, mm -hmm. setup. And I was the whole idea of when I got the iPad. I was like, why do I need a drum pad? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But now I understand why is because having the physical buttons that are outside of the software system is a lot easier to use than sometimes the software itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of the ambient stuff, I have noticed one of the issues, because I do some soundtracking for my own videos, that if I ever create something like ambience, uh, ambient music, you have to press record. Because very often you'll play and it'll be like 15 minutes and you're like, oh, I didn't press record. Oh yeah, and I was like, that was such a great idea, but uh, now it's over, and now I'm hammered anyway because I've been drinking while during the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's an important part of, of recording anything. Just is that press record. record. Kind of like with the podcast. Yeah. Like, just make sure you press record and right. get it on with it. Uh, you mentioned something about the, the Chinese DJ uh, pipa player uh, learning how to DJ. Uh, now we live in a country where this country, when it grabs hold of a subject, it learns it very well, right. and it's like. Um, you know, just a collective, they study it. It's like they take the idea, they, they get the idea from somewhere else and they take that idea and they like master the study of it. Mm -hmm. Can this music be taught that way or does it have to be more organic in the sense that you start out as a kid or someone tinkering around with MIDI boards and stuff like that? Or like, what, what's your feeling in that, in that regard of um, learning how to develop maybe a new style of music or developing your own music? Does it have to be organic or can you learn it from a master i can only talk about my experience here uh i feel like as a disclaimer uh an american coming to china and being like the the know-all on <laughs> chinese people is you know it's you're already losing by starting out that way right but i can only talk about what i've experienced and i've seen so in the the 15 years that i've been here i've seen you know waves and trends and uh, I have uh, noticed what you're talking about. Maybe mm -hmm. if there's something from abroad, when it when it comes here, uh, people uh, they want to know more about it. it. It's it's cool to them, so they will invest a lot of time into it. Um, uh, I could compare it to other Asian countries, maybe like Japan. I feel like uh, in from my experience. Also, uh, I've never been to Japan, but this is my my impression of it. Uh, is that, yeah, like, look at the automotive industry. Uh, they took something from a foreign country, they, they made it their own, and they made it better, right? Uh, it, it, arguably, that's that's one of Japan's uh, uh, claims to fame in, in their, their economy and why they've been so such a, you know, a powerful country. Well, with, with China doing similar things, taking stuff from abroad, focusing on it, learning it, um, I feel like here it's like, sometimes writing on that that trend and trying to get use it as fast as possible to ca to capitalize on it and to captivate people to uh, want to do more of it and what I think is really important is that yeah it can be foreign but if someone local does it and does it well that catapults it even yeah. more because I think it's more relatable mm -hmm. so when I've seen uh, for example the boom in DJs or uh, certain genres like post-rock or heavy metal, when those like really blew up in China, it wasn't because of, of foreign act. 
No, it was because someone here took the time, studied it, and and did it well, and people related to it. And then you get the the people that, you know, mm, try to do what they did, not really copy, but you get the spinoffs, really. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can only really talk about my experience and what I've seen um, over the last couple of years, and I think that electronic music and DJing. It, it can all be learned. But the thing that you can't really teach someone is how to select and how to have taste. Um, you can write in books on, on what is good and why you should like an, an art form and what makes it good. But you that that can't be taught. You, the, the creative part, the taste, the, the personal style is, is developed. Right. And that's up to the person. And, and you can't just say, well, this is good and you... This is how you do the good thing. Now you can do it. It's it's a process, and that that really depends on the individual. Yeah, is there like in terms of uh, what? Because you've met a lot of um, Chinese musicians. Uh, is there a big sort of push to have a multidisciplinary sort of approach to music, or is it like if you learn the pipa, that's all you learn? You don't learn drums or. Uh, piano or anything else. There's no transferable skills being taught. That's that's the older way to do it, and that's I think how a lot of the classical classically trained musicians here were. But you have a lot of people that have access to the internet that are just gonna learn what they think is interesting, mm -hmm. from uh, visual arts to music to any type of study technique, even coding. Uh, you have a younger generation that doesn't need to have someone else teach them they can find that on their own and those are some of the the more interesting people to talk to because they've they've saved a lot of time they've circumvented the process and they've learned stuff on their own um back to multi disciplines uh i know uh, a person who plays a chinese style flute called the chuba it's a i believe it's bamboo and um when they learned it they had a friend that said uh, yeah, you should you should learn this instrument. And halfway through it, they were interested in another instrument. And they said, so I'm thinking about learning this other instrument. And the teacher said, well, um, if you switch to another instrument, I won't I won't recommend a teacher to teach you. You have to stay with this instrument. Okay. So they were really good at the instrument, this musician. But they told me it's like at the very beginning, they wanted to study something completely different. But the way that the the master uh, told him, it was like, if you if you want to study with me, this is the instrument you learn. Yeah, you don't learn anything else. But the master was that was a master of that instrument. Of that instrument, right? So um, that's an old older way to do it, and that's how a lot of people at the conservatories and the the, ac the academies, that's how they're learning it. But the with electronic music, it's kind of there's there's no real one instrument that everyone's playing. I mean, you could argue that it's the computer. Well, it's a style of music, though. Right. Like if you're going to learn EDM, then you learn EDM. You don't learn techno or DMB. Yeah, although I would say that techno is like a, a safe bet here. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people, and it's uh, it's like if you're a little, uh, I don't know, introverted and you don't have much confidence, you might just go with the thing that's the most popular because it's safe. Mm -hmm. So I believe that that is kind of a problem, um, whereas... Uh, the genre is not actually important. It's 
it's what you you are wanting to do. You can be the best techno DJ ever, and there's no problem. Just so happens that techno is one of the most popular of DJing forms here. So a lot of people choose it um, because it's popular, and there's very little branching out. So some some smaller subgenres uh, uh, that I've seen in you know other countries. Um, one, for example, uh, footwork uh, is an American style of electronic music. Okay, um, I haven't heard of it. It's like a, a fast tempo uh, style of music that's supposed to be paired with with dancing. You know, it's it's a from Chicago. Okay. Um, it, it came out of Chicago, but then you get people all around the world making it, from New Zealand to Japan to Poland, Spain and Mexico. You you have this genre as a global genre, but you don't really see a scene in China about it. There's people who might DJ it or be interested in it, uh, but there's a lot of genres like this where um, kind of there's probably tons of people super interested in making it, but it's not popular. Hmm. So there's no payoff to get that credibility. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mix footwork, do right. I? <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so then how did you get into the pipa then? I mean, this is not something that you were studying and you were playing in, in the States, were you? No. Um, as I mentioned, I, I played bass guitar, played uh, strings and bands and stuff. But um, when I came to China in 2009, I started looking on Wikipedia and stuff of like Chinese instruments and music from China. And uh, yeah, pipa was one of them that was always mentioned. I would say pipa and guzheng are the two iconic Chinese instruments, yeah. you know, maybe some flute as well, but that's the main thing in like a Kung Fu movie or a Chinese period film that you see that you're going to hear that. So, uh, I was like, Oh yeah, I knew that. I, I just didn't know it was called Pipa. And, um, I told myself, I was like, well, while I'm here, I should probably learn something, uh, musically so I can take it. Cause I didn't know how long I was going to stay in China. So <laughs> did you choose the music? Like, Cause you're also street taught Chinese language, which we can get into, yeah, yeah. but I mean, so you made the conscious decision that like, this is what I'm going to take away from this country. Right. right. I said, uh, well, I said that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be here for at least a year. Um, <laughs> 20 <laughs> years been, later. Yeah. It's been, yeah. 15, 15. Uh, going on 20. <laughs> and I, I just said, you know, I want to, I want to pick up something while I'm here. So I went to the music store near my house and they had a bunch of things hanging up. I had no idea what was what. I talked with a really annoyed lady uh, and asked if I could play things. And the pipa, it just, the, it was the one that, like, I don't know, I could immediately, like, okay, figure it out. Okay, these are strings. I put my hand here. This makes a noise. And, um, uh, yeah, I just, I bought the cheapest one in the shop and then annoyed my roommates by practicing in my, my room. How long did it take you to become good at it? Or like you know presentable where you weren't annoying your right <laughs> annoying your uh, roommates anymore i didn't really start playing it until like my second or third year out uh so it sat yeah. in the corner for two no, years no. Oh, i mean okay. i would play at home and oh, okay, I, okay. I did some recordings with it but i slowly started to add it to my live set um about 2011 mm -hmm. when i was when i was living in beijing already so i was at that time i was living in ningbo okay and i moved to beijing and um then i started slowly mixing it with my my live electronic project okay mm -hmm. so it wasn't like one of these i'm gonna try that and then you buy it and it sits in the corner for three years and you're like no ah, that's never worked did it no i mean i guess it's because I, I didn't have a lot of things at that point i didn't have a lot of musical things at that point so yeah. it was like if i wanted to 
to just play around with a melody, I would just grab the peep button and, you know, and, and see, you know, and eventually it started to like, I'd write songs on the pipa and then mm. I would write an electronic arrangement around that instead of the other way around. Right. Yeah. Now you're the electronic pipa that you have is you make it yourself, right? It is customized. So I didn't physically like cut the wood and make it that way, but I found a luthier in um, Shanghai mm -hmm. who makes these uh, pipas. Uh, so a friend of a friend like recommended me to go see this guy and we talked told him my requirements and like what was important to me and he drew up a draft and he had done one before for another artist so um you know i knew he could already make one and uh after a couple back and forth like shipments we we got it to where i wanted it and that's the one that i'm using now including the electronics yeah so it's a uh the same uh fretboard as a traditional pipa and the same wood and all that stuff, but a different tuning peg. So the pipa has uh, wooden mm -hmm. pegs and this has aluminum pegs. Okay. So it's more like, that's more like a guitar. And then because it's electronic, you need a way to push out the, 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 the sound. So we installed a pickup, a guitar pickup, so that it can be plugged in. And then that goes into all my effects pedals. And um, it's essentially, I would say a blend of an electric guitar and a, Pipa. right yeah so you're putting this through distortion pedals as well like what kind of pedals are you using to uh, modify the sound i'm actually i'm not a huge fan of distortion i just use it because yeah. it's the yeah. one that i know but um <laughs> i most importantly i have a tuner uh that's the first thing that it hits because with electronic music you're playing with keys that are perfectly in tune right. so you can change it but the the starting point on a on a vst or a, a synth is perfectly in tune yeah um, so if I'm just even slightly out of tune on the pipa, it's it's like pretty noticeable. So tuner, to make sure it's tuned, even to bypass it in case I want to just turn it off completely during the set, I'll hit the tuner and that cuts it out. And mm. um, then that goes into reverbs and delays, uh, which depending on the song can like add a little bit of depth to the the pipa because by itself it's just a very dry sounding instrument. Like a, if you were sitting on your bed playing a guitar electric guitar not plugged in that's what it sounds like so um the reverb and delay just you know gives this this depth to it and then uh i have an overdrive pedal which just uh it's a little like distortion but what what overdrive does is i feel it, it pokes the it pokes the the instrument up a little bit over all that delay and uh, maybe it, it lets it not become as hidden um, so I'm not using it as like a metal or rock sound, but just to kind of give it a bit of bite and push it up mm -hmm. a little bit more. And then my, um, I think on the very end, I have a looper in case I want to, uh, extend something. If I'm, I'm, I'm running out of samples on the computer or something and I, and I want to make a, a new creation, I'll, I'll loop it at the end. Right. Are you interested in getting into any other instruments at all? Like any Chinese instruments, any other international instruments? Well, um, yeah, the, the, the guqin has always been very interesting to me. But actually, speaking of your MIDI controller behind us, <laughs> I had one, about, uh, like a 300 Kwai guqin, and it sat in my room, and I never paid much attention to it. So, um, yeah, I, don't, I got, got rid of that, because if I'm not using something, I like to not you know, have it Oh, you don't like anymore. it just sitting around yeah. collecting <laughs> dust and looking at you and your girlfriend questions, why do you still have that? Why did you buy it in the first place? Right. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. with with that though, uh, one of the reasons I didn't, uh, I haven't used it is because of space. Now you have your own studio now, right? You're not still living in the same place that you have like for for a while. But uh, I have noticed, especially as I started podcasting, it's just like this. I'm able to modify the space. Right. I can work here. I can shift it. I can make it into a podcast space. But if I put a keyboard out, like actually that desk right there is supposed yeah. to be my music studio slash video editor. Perfect. Yes, but there's a bunch of books on there and I haven't moved any of that stuff, which needs to be moved all over the other place. So it's right. like, and given that we've been so busy lately, there just hasn't been time to uh, modify the, the way, modify the apartment the way I would like it so that I can just sit down and use the keyboard as it is. Mm -hmm. So, cause that's what I want. Like I, I did have it on the, the big table over here. Problem was like, it's huge. Right. And then it takes up everything I can't use my keyboard anymore. So mm -hmm. like this is meant to be a multi-use sort of uh, multi-purpose, not a singular use of studio space, like what, what you have as right. well. So uh, speaking of your studio, like, uh, so where are you working these days? Where's your studio located? So I have a studio near Dong Zhiman and Dong Shi Shi Tiao. And uh, it is my like, main, main place that I'm working right now. I've seen um, pictures of it. You've been posting it on WeChat. Right. Uh, so how, how big is the space and like, what, what do you have in there? Uh, so it's, it's two rooms and I guess, I don't know exactly square meters, somewhere like Pick a number. Uh, 60 <laughs> square meters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was a, an old office building, uh, and we completely gutted it. I uh, say we, I worked with a contractor to design it. Oh, okay. And, uh, so the first room when you walk in is the production room. So, uh, computer and all the instruments like synthesizers and controllers and speakers and all that stuff is in one room and then that's all soundproofed and designed to uh, meet the standards of a basic you know, studio and then you can walk into the next room and that's where drums and vocals any recording is done in that room so it's uh, also soundproofed and um, yeah that's that's pretty much it because a lot of the work that I do is not actually related to my uh, own project. So right. I might be recording vocals one night and then drums the next day. So it's, it has to be pretty modular as well, like you were saying with your apartment. So I might be shifting things around for what the, what the project is. Yeah, but you don't have to do office yeah. work in there. Um, and you're not you're not doing <laughs> podcast interviews there as well. You could though. Yeah, I, I mean, but you when you break it down, like you're sitting at a desk behind a computer, it's still office work, even though it's something I like to do. It's still office work. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of drum set do you have there? I have a Tama, okay. a Silver Star drum set with a DW snare. Okay. Um, it's a secondhand snare I bought off a friend. I originally, he was uh, keeping it in a studio I had before. Uh, and like hit, the agreement was like, you can come and practice, but I get to use your drum set for recording. And so when I moved to my next place, I was like, Hey, by the way, I really like this drum set. Do you mind if I buy it from you? because I'm well-versed in, you know, what it sounds like and what it can do in the room. So yeah. that's the set I use. No other reason I bought it. It was just, I was Convenient. familiar with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is that uh, sort of a hallmark of uh, being a good producer, good uh, studio engineer is knowing the equipment? Because I guess like even with microphones, like this microphone, one of the reasons I'm scared of getting rid of it is because I know it. I know totally. the sound. I mean, I, what sort of instruments and does this apply to like midi as well sure. like the mm -hmm. boards and stuff how well midi is so midi is like uh just zeros and ones it's there's no when you're talking about equipment that uses midi that's your controller 
perhaps. Mm -hmm. So if you're well-versed in a controller and you know how to use it and it does everything you need it to do, then there's no real reason to switch it up. So knowing what you have is more important than having many options. Uh, for software, for example, I used a lot of plugins when I first started. A couple thousand plugins I got off a Taobao or something. Okay. And I just great had, place to get them. Yeah. Just had a bunch of things and slowly, you know, cracks they cause problems. Your your software shuts down. They're not reliable. Your client might want something. So um, I just started. If I'm making money from production, I decided I would use that money to buy the actual things and support those companies. So I started to make sure it's real and it right. works and it's compatible and you get the upgrades or right. the updates. Exactly. Um, but the but another side step to that is that I downgraded from having thousands of plugins to just a couple. I, I probably don't use more than twenty plugins. Which ones? What which are the, uh, the go tos? Uh, depending on what I do, but in mixing is what I'm using most of the plugins. So Waves is a company that I use a lot of their okay. plugins. Okay, I, I was researching them, and it seems the, the opinion of them has gone down recently. Uh, the opinion is basically due to their subscription yes. policy. Yeah. So uh, it, it is annoying. Uh, I, you know, you spend money on something, and then they tell you you have software. to... Software. Yeah, you spend money on software. software. You should be able to keep it. But this is coming back from like Adobe when they did it for uh, all their products, you buy a subscription. Um, Pro Tools does it for their stuff, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it is annoying, and I get it. But that's they, they're a company; they have to make money, and that's how software is going. That's the direction that things are going in. So, um, so you got Waves. What else you got? Waves. I use uh, <coughs> one of my one that's on like every mix I do is the Fab Filter series. So okay. I use their their Which, e EQ. All of them? Their Q3 is the EQ I use. C2 is the compressor that I use and a couple other ones. But those those are like every mix I do, like my corrective EQ is with Q3 and the, probably the the compressor I'm using to like not add any color, just to, to simply compress that I'm used to and I know what it does is the uh, FabFilter C2. Mm -hmm. um, a couple other things there here and there, but um, yeah, FabFilter. And then Ozone, uh, it, I use some of its built-in ones. Not just for mastering, but uh, like the limiter in Ozone, the maximizer. Uh, there's a tape uh, tape uh, setting that you can use as well. Just really depends, like um, what I'm using it for. But I try to be very uh, sparse on which ones I use. I use a couple on every channel, and then only because I know what it's going to do. If there's a very special effect that I want, yeah, I might use something else, but. Um, yeah, EQ and compression is like the majority of what I'm doing. Yeah, we were uh, we were talking the other week about. Uh, uh, well, you, you were saying that isotope and ozone uh, ozone are great uh, uh, tools, and I was I tried to use it again to uh, master or to mix or to fix the audio for my last podcast, and I'm doing something wrong. Uh, it's it's distorting the the whole thing. I know what it's doing wrong. It's doing. It's using the wrong reference track, and oh. I don't. It can't. It won't match. It won't use the reference track that I'm putting in mm -hmm. to match the uh, the EQ and the settings and stuff like that. So it keeps on doing it towards like these EDM tracks. I'm going right. the built-in yeah. sort of the the stock mm -hmm. uh, the uh, choices, the presets. Yeah. I'm going to stop doing that. Like use this MP3 or this Wave as a reference track, and I, I can't figure out how to do it. So 
Yeah, I can show it to you. It's no problem. <laughs> I, 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 it's another tool that it's sitting there uh, uh, that is, I'm not using because it's just like the learning curve to get it going in my workflow is too much. The only other purchase I've made is Logic Pro for the iPad, and that's what I, I do use quite a bit. So, but yeah, yeah, I've learned uh, expansion, EQ, compression, uh, and then that's about it. I think I use uh, two compressors now on my uh, my my podcast, but very very simple uh, right mixing well, it's, strip. It's all very useful to use uh, music and voiceover, or I would say like more delicate music. They have to be approached in a different way. So one thing I was doing recently was um, uh, some music for an exhibition that an artist asked me to master. So um, this music is more on like the avant-garde and ambient side where there's like uh, very quiet parts, some some loud parts, and uh, just maybe more atmospheric sounds. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to use the same techniques in a club song where you're really wanting to push everything, make sure everything's very loud, catch people's attention, use that same concept to 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 mix a voiceover or something that has uh, less information uh, just like a more simple uh, simpler kind of sound uh, it's gonna not really represent the the original sound source correctly so I found that like instead of like pushing something to be super loud and super compressed doesn't really work with um, every genre of music right yeah so do you have a, a favorite plugin that you go to, favorite sound, or like, is there, if someone listens to an album that you've mixed or mastered, can they tell you it's you by a certain mm. flair or whatever? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I, I would hope that it's just, it's so neutral that there's, <laughs> there's no, um, there's no, I, I want to, one of the things is like, I want to make it as close to what the artist had right. in mind, but make it sound a little bit better. So I, I'm trying not to like overshadow by like adding my, like, here's what I can do. I want to make it sound balanced and clear and, and unoffensive. That's right. actually the, the goal that I'm trying to do when I, when I mix something and uh, just trying to enhance what the artist has given me. And that goes the same with, with mastering as well as, there's some creative things uh, that I do in mixing. I like I like with a lot. I like to stereo pan a lot of things. And, mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of making things sound wet, like lots of reverb and delay. So it's a lot of people are like, hey, well, let's like bring it in a bit, or let's take okay. some of those effects off. And that's just that's just like working with a client. But um, yeah, I, I guess I I I like things more in like the spacey area, more a little more psychedelic and uh, dubby. That's like how I like to hear things, but that might not work on like a full guitar album, right? Right. So you just have to 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 think about the project and what fits and suits it best. So who's coming to you for uh, for studio work? You already had this DJ girl. You've had uh, you've mentioned guitars before. So like, uh, who else? Who works with you, or who do you work with? I work with a lot of different people. Beijing being an international city, you have people from all around the world, and you have people from all around China. So with my local clients, I've worked with pop singers, uh, Chinese like Mando pop singers right. and um, rock bands. And then with the expat community, uh, uh, one of the artists I worked with a lot last year is this guy named Eric Allen, okay. an American uh, folk Americana singer songwriter. 
Um, so I, I learned a lot in that genre working with him. So, uh, I worked with a lot of other, uh, expats from, from different, different countries doing folk and country and blues music. So recording, like how to, how to record an acoustic guitar, you know, like I got a lot of experience on how to do that sound. And then, uh, because of my, my interest in electronic music, getting to work with, uh, you know, people that are, uh, on the, the cusp of that genre. So hip hop and pop and, um, experimental music. It's all, you know, kind of, if you know a couple of electronic techniques, they, they they cross over to those genres as well. Yeah. So, um, there's a, a Cameroonian, uh, singer that I work with a lot named Abe Shushu, and, uh, he does a lot of uh, Afrobeat and uh, other African styles, but his own style as well. So it's people from lots of different genres and backgrounds that, that I'm working with. And that's just the, one of the things of living in a big city. Do you have the same pay rate for each of these projects or is it different? Um, <laughs> you don't have to give me specifics. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's, that's, I was thinking about this earlier today is like with, with, uh, what I, what I charge, I try to keep it consistent because it's easier for me, number one, to, yeah. to remember. And then you, it depends on the project. Definitely they'll, if there's more work, then there's a higher rate. But uh, you generally, for me, it's it's just better to have a, a fixed price for everybody, uh, more or less, so that if you're getting recommended by someone else, they say a price and you give them a higher quote, it doesn't make you look that great. Mm -hmm. So I try to keep everything pretty fixed upfront about what my my costs are. And I don't know, it's just be upfront with people before you start working with them and you avoid a lot of problems. How much does mixing and mastering a three-hour podcast cost? <laughs> for you, it's gratis. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> I Well, one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I wanted to learn how to use Logic Pro. Like, I, I, That's back in 2020, January 2020, when the whole pandemic was just sort of kicking off. I was like, I finally have time. Like, I didn't see the pandemic as a bad thing just yet, uh, and at least because I still had money at that point. But then I was like, I have a golden opportunity I'm going to learn how to use Logic Pro. Yeah. And then it was like sat down. I had no idea how complicated Logic Pro. My biggest mm -hmm. difference, because I come from a film background-ish right. using Final Cut Pro. Mm -hmm. But my biggest complaint was that with Logic Pro and other like audio software is that all of the buttons are hidden. Like all of a sudden the mixer would pop up. And I'm like, how the hell did I get the mixer? Well, you press the X key. Right. right, and then you press the I key and the Y key, and like mm -hmm. these different windows are popping up all over the place. This doesn't happen in Final Cut. Video, right. you drop the clip in, you put your uh, your effects on, and you don't have to go through a little. You can't dial in, but you can dial in how much of an effect you want to apply. But in terms of like your your uh, mixer board, your chain, uh, I had finding my way mm -hmm. through the menus and the sub menus of Logic. It was. It was so daunting. So it takes time, <laughs> oh, forever. Um, uh, you know, my background in video editing is iMovie on the Mac. I mean, okay. like, that's all. I, <laughs> I mean, if I need to make something very quickly, but I do know, um, you know, I've used Logic and other software. The first uh, Mac I had had GarageBand on it, yeah. and that's basically uh, those the Logic and GarageBand. I think they're in, you can use the files from GarageBand in Logic. Yes. And they they have some things that overlap. But GarageBand but, is no. far simpler than Logic. <laughs> you, I, I don't think you really want to be comparing the two, but uh, they they have some some things that overlap. But 
the thing about logic i think it's it is there might be some hidden things but for a lot of people it's it's pretty user friendly um compared to other software out there once you kind of know what to do and where to look and how to put things together yeah it's it's more intuitive than other softwares out there i bought it because i was like i when I bought it back in 2017, I knew I wasn't going to use it right away. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, same with Final Cut. So I, I bought, actually what I did, and this was funny, is that uh, in Canada, I asked them, well, so can I buy gift cards that I can finance at 0% for 12 months? Or can I buy the software and finance that? Because I was financing the MacBook. Well, they're like, well, you can't, you can't finance the software, but you can finance the MacBook. I'm like, okay, but I can buy the gift cards. So I bought like $1,200 worth of gift cards and like, Sir, are you sure you're not being scammed by someone? I'm like, no, oh, no, no. Yeah. I'm scamming myself. Believe me. <laughs> That's my credit card. And every This is my own stupidity. <clears throat> and so I ended up buying all this, uh, these gift cards and buying the software. And again, it just sat there for years oh, until yeah. I had the time. Uh, so pandemic, I mean, a lot of people didn't like the pandemic. I was kind of like, boy, that gave me a lot of time to work on stuff. It really did. Definitely. So, uh, but yeah, Logic Pro, I mean, uh, I... I I've been looking at people to, no, actually, that's a lie. I have not wanted to hire anybody else to do editing for me because I still feel I have more to learn mm -hmm. um, in the Logic Pro film editing and stuff like that. Uh, and I kind of, I guess the other thing is like, I'm not sure about your clients. Do they know what they're talking about when they ask you what to do? Usually the least experienced have the most uh, misconceptions and the, the least knowledge of the terms, but okay. that's just general. Um, Could you give it, an example? Uh, just just terminology. Sometimes uh, people, you know, they might use a term like, let's say, uh, auto tune. That's a great one because <laughs> um, everybody knows auto tune. We've we we we've heard it in you know lots of popular music, but there's another type of effect called pitch correction. Yes, auto tune does change the pitch, but pitch correction is probably what you hear more often than um than auto-tune uh pitch correction is taking maybe a, a note that was sung flat or sharp and popping it up to where it should be in the song mm -hmm. um uh it's uh most rock and hip-hop and pop music the engineer is going to be doing this there might be someone that's hired just to do that um then it, as a, more of an effect people might use auto-tune but for most people that don't know anything about music and you know they want to they they know okay that 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 vocal is off put auto-tune on it a lot of times i'll get i'll get these sort of things where they're just confused about what the terminology is the lingo mm -hmm. and um what about eq and compression right so that's another thing where um eq and uh you know i've had some some cases where someone was like and then at this part of the song what i wanted it to be like the compressor to come in and i was like oh well you know i'm not using the compressor in this way i'm using it like throughout the whole song to keep keep the song like checked and volumes don't go up and down so i am using a compressor and like hmm and you just kind of figure out what they actually mean and they're in this case they, they wanted the song to get get more intense R and louder really? okay yeah but they use the compressor because maybe that in their mind that's what a compressor does yeah so okay. uh in general, it does, yeah. but uh, not exactly. Yeah, so uh, I used to get a little annoyed, but I came to the conclusion that the reason that people are coming to me is because they can't do it on their own. Yeah. Or they don't want to, or they don't have time. So it's not my job to to tell them 
no, you're wrong. That's this. I can I can school them a little bit on what the terminology is, but they're hiring me to make their products the way that they want it. So I'm not upset. I'm just trying to better understand what they actually mean. And sometimes that just takes a little bit of patience. I found audio engineers to be a lot more calm and placid compared to video guys. They just like they they are willing to listen to what maybe it's because they're so used to hearing you have no idea what you're talking about and I have to understand what you're talking about because I actually have no idea what you are talking about. When you say EQ and you pull out your plug-in set, you're like, which one? Which one do you mean? Right. A lot of times it's as simple as just showing someone, okay, this is A, this is B. Right. What you're saying, I can try to understand it and and uh, uh, resolve that issue. So here's what it sounds like. Is this what you want me to do? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of times when someone says that, you know, they, they want this thing. And I was like, well, let's check this out. I'll do it for them. And then they'll be like, oh, that's exactly what I was talking about. I was like, oh, no, no. What I mean is, and they might show me a reference from another song, right. which is really helpful. Put something in writing rather than like a voice message. Mm -hmm. A voice message is like speaking into the ether, you know. <laughs> but when you write something down, you're a little more conscious of what you want to say if you, if, if you can express it that way so yeah it's just about trying to really understand what someone wants because they might not know the terminology in the industry so it's just about figuring out what they want and why would they care i mean I've, as i've sort of learned a lot of people like what well, they don't want to know they, mm -hmm. i don't care i just want to have it sound good yeah exactly like, that's it yeah um what do do you get a lot of reference tracks like do people bring in reference tracks that you can use and i like a reference track uh so i use them most often in a, when i'm starting a new composition someone says hey i want music for this project can you write a piece of music for me um then having a reference track is a good way to to build off uh of what they want and it's it's usually they already kind of want that track, but because copyright reasons, yeah. and, you know, just morals, you can't just use someone else's music. I guess so, not. <laughs> right. So, so I try to just, uh, you know, you, when you listen to a reference track for composition, you're trying to kind of get to, close to that and then add, you know, things of your own or mix other things together for, for uh, post-production, like mixing and mastering. The reference track is useful for getting the levels and the, the information similar so if there's a track with some like really crazy drums on it and it's like really pushing and it's up, up in your face and your track has the vocals like more up in your face you can listen to the reference and say okay this is what the client wants they want more of that that sound and try to make your track a little more similar to it not again copy it exactly because they're using different instruments they're mm -hmm. a different singer but the reference track is just a good stepping point for me and I I always like as I'm mixing or doing a master, I'll flip back to the reference and say, "Okay, mm, okay, that that can be tweaked here a little bit." Yeah, yeah. Is there a style of music you prefer to work in, or you don't care? Like in terms of clients? Um, though there's just like I guess think about your musical taste, what you like to listen to. I'm, I'm similar to that. I really like electronic music and club music. I like stuff that's more experimental. Um, I like. Uh, styles of rock music that are a little more odd, like math rock and oh, okay. post rock, this sort of thing. Like <laughs> you're one of those guys. Yeah, <laughs> for me, that's that's more interesting to work with. But not always working in the same genre is important because then I can learn different techniques and understand in case those come up. So I have um, 
I do very little music in like blues, but I've worked with it, uh, enough people in that genre that, you know, I can send it as a reference and say, look, I can, I can do that as well. Um, so getting out of your comfort zone is important. Right. What is a bad day at the office for you? Because you said, well, sitting at a desk, it makes it just like an office job. And I'm going, no, sir, I don't believe you. I mean, you, because uh, actually one of the uh, previous episodes I had, uh, this lady, she's a, a camera operator. She's in Turkey right now. And right. so it's just like, how do you have a bad day? I mean, I imagine there are bad days, mm -hmm. but like for you, what would a bad day at the office be? When you're doing anything that's not music. When you're, you're I'm there to do music. And when I get stuck troubleshooting something or equipment just doesn't work and I'm wasting an hour like troubleshooting a software glitch or something or um, uh, maybe the project isn't going the way that I want and there's a communication problem or um, those are the bad days in the office because it was when I'm distracted from the whole reason I'm there um, but that's necessary you need to have time to to deal with things and fix problems so when I'm actually creating and I'm actually making music and editing i'm having fun mm -hmm. but it's like all that other stuff in between like dealing with dealing with troubleshooting that's not fun for me billing billing um yeah it's it's different with it with everyone like yeah um, you get paid half for, up front don't you depends on the project okay you know it really depends and sometimes you're dealing with um, a client one-to-one -one. that's usually pretty helpful sometimes if it's a big project and lots on the line you you sign a contract mm -hmm. and sometimes that's that's half up front or it's paid in, in installments um there are certain uh companies that they might their accounting might be done once a year so you oh, might goodness. get you might get uh paid like six months later for something that you did <laughs> those those kind of projects i tend not to really well no like you can't uh, you can't uh, finance your life that way right, right? yeah so, yeah uh troubleshooting how do you deal with it uh i i can't count the times that uh drumsticks have gone across the room books have flown across the room uh i haven't thrown a computer out the room uh but certainly the temptation has been there the only thought that keeps me humble is that i can't i don't have enough money to burn this piece of equipment like right. the early 90s rockers how do you deal with this? Um, there's a lot of cursing at the computer. Yeah. <laughs> but in Chinese or English? Uh, yeah, mostly in English. Um, because I don't, I don't really curse in Chinese. Cause right. I'm, I'm trying not to offend anyone. Right. No, um, no, just uh, I try to take little breaks every once in a while. Maybe like a stretch or go to go down to the shop and get, get a drink or something. Um, just get, get away from the, the issue. And then try to come back at it, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really enjoy troubleshooting. I know who does, but one thing is like maybe taking a break from it for a little while, and and then coming back and try to try to resolve the issue that way. Um, uh, do you treat your clients' music the same way that you treat your own music, like in terms of like application of the uh, the programs, the methodology, uh, time spent? Mm. Short answer, yes. I mean, but there's also other things that they don't actually want the kind of time I might spend on my own music or like, you know, it really depends on what the client wants. Sometimes they just want something. Well, they very have a simple. deadline. Usually. They have a deadline or their idea is completely different. Some, some projects do get to a certain point where I'm, I might not be interested in it, but it's still respectful to, to show like 
the same amount of professionalism to it that I would on any other project. So um, there's some some things that I'm more interested in than others, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to do like a, a crappy job on one just because I don't like it because I might learn something from it uh, in, along the way, or maybe it's a good time to experiment with some new technique I haven't done yet. So I try to make you know it interesting, even though it might not be stimulating for me. Well, like yeah. two, three, ten years down the road, you're going to hear that track, mm -hmm. whether or not it's the same client or you, you come across it again, you'll be like, you, you're going to remember, mm -hmm. you know, I, did you not give it your all or is like you right. know, something different, you know, especially that thought, well, I could do this, but I won't because, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, but something right. like that, just making sure it's consistent and that you've gave your, your, your all sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if the client is uh, professional, they'll, they'll credit me for it. Right. So uh, my name's on it. Why do I want to associate my name yes. with anything that's subpar? So I, I try to keep that in mind. Um, I had a, a teacher in high school, uh, my civics teacher. He made this point. It was like, when you take a test in class, the first thing you write on it is your name. Yeah. So if you're going to not study and bomb the test, your name's on it. Why would you want your name to be on something that's not good quality? And that always stuck in my head as uh, something, you know, if I'm going to work on a project, even though I might not be interested in the music, if, if I'm credited and someone goes and looks at the credit and he goes, well, this mix is awful. Who did it? Yeah. Oh, this guy. Or if it's awesome, someone would might, you know, ask who did it and I can get a referral from that. So it's in my best intention to do a good job. Kind of different than a high school test. I mean, I don't know how many of your high school tests matter <laughs> well, for your next job or whatever. Maybe for your next grade. I did fail at a comp sci, but, okay. but uh, I still tried it in university. Should have just followed the, the failure and go, don't do yeah. that. But, yeah, I mean, with your, your music, I mean, and uh, your work, I mean, it's sort of cumulative in terms of like one project leads to the next sort mm -hmm. of thing. So uh, it's a good idea to uh, be as good as you can. Uh, so getting back to your um, uh, music, yeah, cheers. Uh, we've uh, been going for uh, a decent time. Okay. Um, 22 albums. Okay. How? Uh, well, let's see. Some of them... Depends on what you rate an album as, how many songs. Some you tell have... me because I, yeah. <laughs> I was listening to, I think it was Perry Loon. Uh -huh. uh, that was a pretty trippy listening. It was good podcast setup music. Right. So that, that was a, I didn't want anything too crazy, but I don't think a lot of the stuff is too, too crazy. No, a lot of it doesn't have a steady beat like your trance tracks do. Right. I, you kind of do, I was listening to it in both headphones because I was like, just in case I knew your studio guy and like, he's going to do something with the, the stereo mix at some point. Okay. Uh, but uh, I don't think you did. It was nothing too crazy. Right, not, not too, too like movement. I mean, stuff is is spaced, but yes. I don't know, move like too crazily, yeah. You do a lot of what I would call build-ups, like uh -huh. EDM build-ups or uh, sw uh, swells and stuff like that, but it never seemed to break out into like the EDM form mm -hmm. floor sort of thing. So... 22 albums, um, various track lengths, uh, 12 minutes, three minutes seems to be pretty common as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, some of the al albums, quote unquote, two tracks, right, uh, three uh, tracks. Yeah, an EP or something. EP or something yeah. like that. Uh, 22 titles. There How you did you do this? Like, what, what was the process? Why have you been so prolific? Um, well, it just started with that first album I put on Bandcamp. I was living in Alabama and Mobile and I had uh, just started using Ableton Live so I had all these like kind of ideas and um, I had enough songs to make an album so I just put a couple together 
a friend of mine did the artwork. Another friend said, hey, can I, I'm learning mastering. Can I master your stuff? There you go. And I was like, this is great. I have an album. And so uh, I just kind of like had this band camp always running. So when I got to enough tracks or I felt like something was a, a completed version. Yeah, a completed idea maybe. Yeah, I'd yeah put it up and, you know. Uh, so these are like collections from like 2006, you said? From or? 2006 is when I started this band camp. Wow. But I had stuff from before that that's um, been retroactively put on. Okay. But coming to China, I started doing like uh, an album or two a year, like just maybe sometimes more prolific, sometimes less. And uh, yeah, just when I when I had something, there's hard drives of things that are like, that's a concept, that's a concept. It's just not finished yet. And when I get time, I'll I'll do it. How long does it take you to go from concept to finished, finished product? Sometimes it's really fast. I can do something in a few weeks. And then the last uh, album I put out, um, Ghost Lineage, um, I, I was ready to put it out before the pandemic. I was like, this is done. And then when the pandemic happened, I would go home a little bit every night and like tweak stuff. And then I started getting busy with work and that took two years to finish. Jeez. And it wasn't like I was in the studio every night being like, no, that, that is, it was just, it, I just wasn't, I wasn't dedicating the time. So, uh, work got busy and then I would jump back in and, and I'm glad I took the time because I found different people to like be featured on it. I found a mastering engineer that I liked. I found the right guy who did the artwork and the photography. So, um, sometimes albums take, they can take much longer then sometimes it's just super fast and it's like that's the idea and i don't want to change anything and that's it so i've been uh, i've always been surprised when i hear someone says oh it took me forever to do this album you know five six ten years or similar like a movie idea yeah uh, and then uh, to be fully honest uh the in 2013 uh, i went back to canada to record a a, a djembe a west african inspired uh, percussion album mm -hmm. it is still not done Okay. So, uh, and again, it was because I recorded it in GarageBand. I want to learn how to do mixing. Uh, nine years later. Mm -hmm. I'll get to it one day. Yeah, sure. It'll, it'll come up. there. Uh, but in terms of your work, uh, what would you actually say is your, your best one? Uh, or one that you would say people should listen to um, if they've never heard you before? Because you've got... Uh, you have some Chinese characters on here, uh, which is not... Like, it's not off-putting, but a lot of English characters... You have some interesting artwork, some cityscapes and stuff like that. And people can take a look at it. It's throughoutin.bandcamp.com uh, is the uh, the website. Um, and then you have this neat one, sound of, The Sound of Walking, with this uh, elderly man, big beard, uh, probably a little bit shorter than mine, playing the... What's, what instrument is that? This is a sanxian. Okay. Uh, it's a string, three-stringed instrument from, from... Typically from Western China, but... You can find it all over in even Japan has a couple versions of it. This album is an, uh, is a, these are two tracks and it's an excerpt from a larger compilation okay. that I did with <laughs> a, um, uh, a friend of mine named Namu and they went out to some uh, minority areas in, uh, in China, like Gansu province and Xinjiang and, uh, uh Mongolia, inner Mongolia. And they recorded, uh, people that were, um, at the later stages of their life. So uh, this person on the cover, this grandfather, they recorded him in one of the trips. By the second trip, he already passed away. So um, they did a bunch of collection. I think in Chinese, it's called Taifeng. 
uh, what it what basically it means is like going out and gathering sounds and and uh so they did a bunch of gathering of stuff they brought it back to beijing at their studio and then they worked with different musicians to add stuff to these local um minority voices and uh, made a whole compilation out of that so i was given uh some uh some stringed instrument like the sanshin and so this this man who's on the cover uh this grandfather was singing so i used some of his voices and uh, then added some electronic elements and uh the two tracks that uh i made were the intro and the outro to the whole album it's a it's a pretty cool thing um it's it's using a lot of uh uh instruments from around china but with like also electronic music so there's uh, i don't want to use the term world music because i don't really like this term but it's it's uh <laughs> using a lot of chinese traditional instruments with modern instruments okay that's how i would put it well, it can't be world if you, it's mostly Chinese, right? And, yeah, but you have the um. Let's say like you know is, yeah, arguably yeah. It's not like all over the world. But if you were yeah. mixing Chinese with Japanese, with uh, South African, with Latin American mm -hmm. sort of instrumentation and notation and stuff like that, maybe we, we can go with world music. But right. drum set, I don't know. Is that that's pretty generic nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, so, completely. Uh, so which one would you uh, if people were going to press on one icon? What would they what would they go for first? I would I'd say go for I mean the, the one that I've released most recently is I think a more mature version of what I'm doing currently. It's called Ghost Lineage. It's the third oh, one okay. there. Um that one is one that you know, it was like the bigger uh release of mine this year and it was actually the first vinyl that I had ever done. why vinyl? Uh <laughs> I, I well um Vinyl's cool, number one. <laughs> <laughs> you got to know that. But uh, no, no, a friend of mine has a, a label in Chengdu called New Noise. Okay. And I sent him the material and I, and I asked if he wanted to release it and he, he was interested. Um, and it's just kind of like a benchmark. I guess a writer might do uh, short stories, but then they'll get a novel pub published, right? And that's kind of, for some writers, that's the, the mark of being, okay, like kind of more legit. Okay. You know, um, I feel for me, I'm not big into like what the fidelity of vinyl is. And I'm not a vinyl collector. For me, vinyl just always thought that that was like a personal benchmark of something I wanted to achieve. Uh, anyone with enough money can make a vinyl. It doesn't matter. But especially nowadays. Yeah. yeah. I just felt like you know, it was something I hadn't done. And I'd like to see my music in that format. Uh, I'd done a lot with cassette in the past. It's probably my favorite format is cassette. But um um, the music I, from writing it, I always had in mind that I was like, this, I want to hear this on vinyl. So that's why uh, I think if you want to check it out, check out the digital version on Bandcamp. And if you want to hear it on vinyl, go, go buy it. So <laughs> does, so how, how much of a difference is there between the digital and the vinyl versions? Uh, so it's, it's all started as a, a digital thing. Yeah. So, um, the music is completely the same, but the, the fidelity is going to be, I would say, just looking at the waveforms, vinyl is going to be slightly quieter. Yeah, because soft um, Yeah, uh, but the whole album is, is also not like super loud the whole time. Um, I, yeah, I found when I, when I listened to it on turntables, it was, it's just like more dynamic and a little like quieter, in my opinion. Like all these terms that people throw around, like warm and it's got analog heat and all these terms like it's hard for me to really describe it what that okay. what that actually is because it might be different for every person but 
I don't know. I I just like the, the softerness of it on the vinyl. Mm -hmm. That could make it as simple as possible. No, you also released cassettes along mm -hmm. with uh, I guess uh, Day, uh, Dan Gamer. He was on right. the podcast a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, and he's into releasing cassettes as well. Uh, why cassettes? <laughs> Same question, I guess. Cassettes at, at at the time when I started making music for cassette, and there was a factory in Beijing that made it cheaper than CDs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's always cool to have like something physical. Yeah. Uh, my I I loved buying merch as a kid. Uh, like at shows, I would want to get like the T-shirt or the the CD. So when I started playing and touring, I would make sure to always bring merch. I might not sell it, but it was there, and if someone liked it. It was available and they could buy it. T-shirts too? Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't made a shirt in a long time. With tour dates? I mean, yeah. that's the stuff <laughs> I go buy. And it's it's not like I even wear them. I just buy them and like I was there. Right. So, uh, yeah, just having merch is like something I, I'm a sucker for. And so when I when I started making music, I was like, you know, why not have do the do the same thing? We uh, in Beijing, a couple friends, we found another friend who had done a tape, and we all used the same factory. I have no idea where that factory is now, but eventually we started to figure out that we could just make these things on our own. So uh, Dan Gamer, who you mentioned, he bought a tape duplicator and we figured out <laughs> how to, you know, run it, the, you know, this audio through your computer, to, uh, then into a, uh, a tape deck and use that master tape to duplicate it. Right. How to do all the, uh, find the Taobao that makes the plastic for the cases. Yeah. And, the printer that makes really nice stickers for the top and so we just started making our own tapes and when i say we like i would get, gather all my files and like go to their place and right. do it with them but you know they were doing most of the you know the it's the not, grunt work and right. stuff but yeah tapes were just it was just fun and and you can include a digital download with it yeah so it's if you're not even into tapes you don't have a tape player it could be a that you can put on display or gift to a friend. A reminder that you have to listen to the album. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bought that. I should probably listen to it now. Mm -hmm. uh, same with CDs. Uh, yeah, I remember there was a big, uh, I had a bit of a rift with my band back in the day. I bought, I was at uh, Mother's Music and I bought a bunch of cassettes, 30 minute cassette tapes, because that was going to be the length of our EP. Mm -hmm. I bought them on sale or something. And so I committed, it's like a dollar or some dollar eighty. Right. And they were like, no, we should release it on CD. And like this, we're talking like this was at the transition point, uh, like 99, 2000, around there, 2001. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I had this box of cassettes. I was like pissed. I was like, I bought them. And it only cost me like 40 bucks. But back right. then, you know, 40 bucks was 40 bucks. And uh, I guess it's still $40 these days. Um, but I was, I still have them, those cassette, cassette tapes. So they're oh, sitting there, either 20 years old, 25 years old, oh, unlabeled. I mean, vintage, if you wanted vintage cassette tapes, I have some for you. You can do your Djembe album on cassette. But it's only 30 minutes, uh, the Djembe. Well, actually, I could, because the Djembe album was 43 minutes long, I think. Yeah, you can make a special tape edit. I the... could. I uh, probably will. That's an idea. Now, uh, if will the tapes last? I mean, will they go through a tape recorder at this point? I That's guess my big question. unknown, depending on how they're stored. I think... Uh, <laughs> no <tapes>. special. <laughs> Nothing special. <laughs> tapes I used to keep in my car would get warped yeah know. i think that's uh so it'd be a ultra limited edition one one print per i guess every edition would be a new edition because you just don't know what it's going to be like yeah i don't even know if this tape works i mean try it out <laughs> have the digital download and here's a backup copy just in case mm -hmm. i guess 
so which do you prefer? Like C, uh, digital, MP3, wave, vinyl, cassettes? What's your go-to mainly? So uh, for, for physical formats, uh, of course, I'm going to always prefer the, the digital wave. And it's the highest quality you know, of, of, of what you can get, of how it started. That's how the artist made it. But for physical, um, uh, I think CD is going to be my favorite because that's when, right when I started buying music and ooh, I was like 11, 12, like, uh, like 95, 97, that's when like, uh, you know, CDs were king at that point. Yeah. CD just always sounded very sharp and like the vanguard of technology, like CD, you turn it over and there's a mirror, you know, it's just like, CDs are always like the coolest thing ever. Like they just felt so futuristic. So for me, CD is always like for me like going to be the the coolest, right? But um, they all have their different characteristics, and uh, also CDs can be like the cheapest too, like the cheapest quality. Uh, In what way? They can just sometimes be like the just like break easily and like get scratched and all that stuff. But it there's no better format. It's just depending on what quality you want and right. what you're using it for. Vinyl's great because it's huge and has a the artwork's gonna look amazing. Tape has its own warmth and like But you can't play it. Yeah, well if you have a tape player and uh tape also has its little quirkiness. It gets out of you know, it gets like warped and, and stuff like that and vinyl has that, that scratchy like uh needle sound. Yeah. Um and the skipping from cd is interesting so and there's other formats too but uh, those like i guess you know like from from nostalgia cd is always going to be my favorite can you hear the difference between an mp3 and a wave yes um when you're in a club and someone has played like a 90 something kilobyte rip from youtube <laughs> followed by a flak file right there's there's a difference but um for the most part, I think it's like 320 is the, the highest quality. For MP3s, yeah. Um, you'll be hard-pressed to really tell the difference unless you're on a really amazing system. Maybe you trained your ears to look for it. What about like 128? Um, even that, I mean, you, you're, unless there's some, like, when you were downloading it, some imperfection that was added to it, you're probably not going to hear it. Um, just to be safe, I always, you know, my final projects are always going to be wave, and then you can downsample, you can convert it down yeah. to MP3. What what do you spit it out at then for the the wave file? Like, what's your bit rate and everything? Bit rate, I I usually go for twenty four and um, forty eight for the sample rate, but uh, if you're going to, a lot of times for physical format, it's forty four point one. Really? Yeah. Um, That's CD basically. Yeah. yeah. So. So the, the general rule of thumb is like you can go to like all like really high quality um, sample rates. You can sample down, down sample with no problem. Yeah. Just, you can't just go the other way around. So if you record an MP3, something as an MP3, you can't make it a wave, but you can do it the other way around. The programs will let you do that, but it, it, you will hear the difference. Like that, that's where you can tell the difference between an MP3 and a, and a wave for sure. Uh, what's what's for you going forward uh, in terms of your, your music? You have 22 albums. You're going to double that in the next 14 years, probably. I would I would like to to Triple. continue doing it. Um, there are you know there's there's a lot of 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 like unfinished birdhouses 
in <laughs> in my in my head of, of of albums that I want to release. So I'm I'm going to consistently be doing that. But another thing that I'm, I'm focusing a lot on is uh, my knowledge of of the the studio work that I do. Okay. So getting better at recording and get, getting better at post production. Just it's it's only going to benefit myself, my own music, but it's something that is transferable where if I want to use it for other skills, um, you know, we'll work with other artists. That's that's the trajectory I'm going in with uh with the music right now is is those those two parts. So I'm gonna be continuing on kind of basically what I'm doing now, but just going forward with it. Is your music gonna change very much, do you think? Like is there anything that you want to try uh try differently or um or? I think with each album I'm doing certain things that are they're not the same uh i try to to just listen to lots of music and by doing that i'm constantly being influenced by you know different rhythms and different sampling techniques and different sounds and timbers and all, all that stuff i'm always kind of changing what i'm doing um i'm not trying to be one specific genre um so i i think it's only natural that in a few years i am maybe making a completely different style of music maybe it's still electronic and experimental but with different nods to different types of music mm -hmm. what are some names that you're listening to these days so let's see uh, it, when i get it put on the spot i automatically forget um some some artists that i'm listening to uh just recently i found some i think it's a as a producer from brussels name uh le motel okay <laughs> yeah um and that's kind of like he's doing some some like some spanish vocal sampling but with more like club oriented stuff kind of like a uh oh, i don't know how to explain it bassier vibe uh that's like one of the more recent things i was listening to um also on the on like the the rock end of things like just uh going through there's a singaporean band called forests Mm -hmm. They do like a Midwest emo, uh, like their music. So I try to just switch it up. And of course, the Beijing, we're in Beijing. So I'm seeing lots of uh, local artists here in the experimental Any names? scene. Yeah, there's a, a noise artist named Sun Yi Zhou, mm -hmm. S U N Y I Z H O U. Um, and uh, last time I saw him, he did. Uh, stuff with like homemade uh, like motors inside plastic <laughs> bottles, like just that sort of thing. And then he like wrote uh, poetry as he was doing that, and then he <laughs> sent the recording of him reading back the poetry through a speaker, right? And cut it so it was just the bass frequencies, and then he put the bottles on top of the speaker, and it rumbled. <laughs> and that was the piece. <laughs> so How like, long was his set? Uh, there were three 30 minute parts of it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, an hour and 30 minutes, but, wow. uh, yeah, not trying to, 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 again, just listen to one certain thing, but I kind of just see what, what washes over me and I'll, where do you find your music? Like, how'd you find this uh, motor bottle guy? Uh, so Sun Ijo was on a, a bill with me, uh, about two years ago at a venue in Beijing called UFO. Mm-hmm. And he opened up and he did like some like very delicate kind of like noise, like kind of like if your TV is like on static, 
or like you hear like a ringing noise like tinnitus or something it was that kind of small noise <laughs> i don't do a lot of yeah. people have a tinnitus <laughs> that probably feeling? <laughs> yeah if you listen to stuff too loud so uh, he was doing like the more like that noise music and that's how i found out about him but I, I usually find out about new music by uh word of mouth uh i'll go through like places like twitter and see bills of uh different shows going on like or, like a lot of stuff in north america and europe I'll go to the name I don't know on the bill and then I'll search and listen to that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if it's an artist I already like and they're playing a show with that artist, I'll, uh, you know, be more interested to like see, okay, I don't know who this person is. So I like, go and check it out. Mm. That's how I, I like to, I like to do it that way rather than listening to Spotify lists. Yeah. Um, which is great. And I know a lot of people when they're working, they're cleaning the house or something, they might just put on a, a list and let it go and then they might hear something. And that's actually how most people are consuming and finding new music. But I kind of just like the, the oddness of like, uh, f like stumbling upon something. And then well, yours, your approach is a much more needle in the haystack. Yeah, it's, a, it's not like the needle of the haystack, the MP3 files. Where, where I put my music file again? What was that track name again? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, I don't know if it's a support or do you just buy merch as you go like whenever you see someone cassettes cds t-shirts um if i like the band um and i'm feeling like it's something that might be good for my collection i'll i'll get it um and on Bandcamp as well if i'm pre preparing for a dj set and there's a, a an album or a track that i i want to get um i'll give like what six euros or something for it you know like the album you know whatever um but uh, I don't always buy everything. Um, so, that you know, like, sometimes it's a trade. Like, if I like an artist that I know personally and I have a CD and, you know, tape or whatever, I'll ask, you know, you want to trade? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how we get music as well. So how big is your collection now? Um, and where do you store it? I have some shelves, kind of like your bookshelves here, uh, but, you know, like, horizontal. And I have most of my cassettes there. Okay. Uh, right now I'm kind of not buying as, as many cassettes and CDs, but focusing on like my, what my collection, so maybe some themes in the collection. Mm -hmm. So the last year or so I've been trying to do more China ambient, which is, there's not a lot being made. So, um, yeah, that's one thing. Like if I see or come across something that's domestic and ambient, I'm probably gonna be more interested to buy that than maybe a, a punk band i see where would yeah. you find chinese ambient music uh there's a there's a couple labels in china that specialize in that and then there's some artists that might do a self-release of that uh any some, names in particular um the the label uh, that i like is out of guangzhou and they're called jungyam mm -hmm. uh, j-y-u-g-a-m and it's cantonese for I forget what it is like being present maybe okay. I could be wrong like but anyway they're 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 more focused on ambient music so if you follow their label then you can start to know like who else is doing it around China right there's a there's a handful of other ones um but uh for me that was just kind of like well I kind of have enough cassettes and I might not be in China forever so why not like make a theme out of my collection and yeah kind of have focused on on one thing uh, you've done touring as well, uh, China touring and worldwide touring sure. as well. So yeah. what was that like? I mean, before the pandemic, of course. 
Well, I guess it goes back to when I was in university, uh, back in the MySpace days, I would contact oh, wow. <laughs> contact venues and uh, get in my car and just drive. So I did some stuff in like the southeast of the U.S., uh, the eastern seaboard. I went up to your neck of the woods in Canada at least twice. And um, whereabouts? Uh, Toronto. Played in, uh, well, Toronto didn't happen even though I went all the way there. Yeah. So in the middle, went to London. Okay. And played at a house show. And uh, then in uh, Montreal, yeah, uh, I've been to a couple other places, but didn't didn't play music there. So that was like my my background of touring before I came to China. And just you know, it was just the idea of waking up and your whole uh, reason for that day is to go to the next place and play felt like amazing to me. And I, and I always loved touring because of that. Mm-hmm. So then when I um. When I came to China, I, I would do like little one-off shows in different cities. Like Shanghai was my first proper show. I would say it's easier in China than like well, the States or Canada for sure. Yeah. yeah. Especially because you don't have to have a car here. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just used that um, kind of mentality. And then when I had enough contacts, I just did like, you know, a couple China tours. And then I branched out like I did uh, South Korea one time, Taiwan another time, Hong Kong. And then I did like the the Southeast Asian leg of it, which would be like start in Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia. That was mm-hmm. really cool. And each time just meeting people along the way. And how did uh, you set these up? Like how were you able to get these international tours going? Just you'd meet someone that had gone there already. And I would say, okay, so oh, I saw that you guys did a South Korea tour like last spring. Um, how was it? And would you mind if I got some contacts? And then you, you get the venue or the promoter or this person in another band. And you, that I was just setting it up all on my own and uh, making enough probably for the train. Mm-hmm. Um, depends. Sometimes the the venue would even like put you up at their the promoter's house, you know, or give you a hotel. And sometimes they wouldn't do anything. You know, it right. just depends. So yeah, I started doing that as like DIY, and then slowly, uh, recently the the bigger tours I've done have been with like bigger projects. So there's a a, a like right before the pandemic i went to croatia and um bulgaria and georgia with a a chinese dance contemporary dance project called um called uh wushu um it's like a martial arts and contemporary dance okay and i think that had some funding from like a bigger like some maybe like government kind of funding possibly so we were able to go to these like all these ex uh soviet and uh, they have a really good relationship with like the the, the Iron Curtain countries yeah. because they're so we were, I was able to go to tour in those countries and like would be completely different than a DIY tour and places that I would, if I was going to go to Europe I'd go to like you know the big the big countries like wouldn't go Germany, to Georgia Germany France <laughs> England where everyone goes you know but I wouldn't I wouldn't be my first thing to go to to Bulgaria right so yeah. it was like my <laughs> Yeah, that was a really nice way to tour. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm sure there's uh, you could probably DIY it, but uh, it'd be tough. Right. It, like even Southeast Asia, I imagine that would be difficult because uh, language barrier, uh, not just speaking, but in terms of searching. Yeah. Like how do you find the places? How do you find the contact? It's, uh, it's very difficult. And then even trying to uh, land in the city and just look around. I mean, what are you looking for, right? It's just you know it's kind of this even though i wasn't playing punk music it's that that punk community ethos of like really people 
helping you out so much. Like I, I had incredible tours because uh, I wasn't making big bucks. I was just with amazing people. Like, um, and it's like when someone goes to that country and they ask you, you do the same. You're like, here's this person. Just, you know, you, uh, this is what you should do in this city. And that person might not even be doing it anymore. But when they, when it references back to you, they're like, I don't really do shows here anymore, but this person does. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just about if you're trying to be very comfortable and make a bunch of money, and DIY touring is obviously not for you, but if you want to make great contacts and play music that you want to play in interesting places, then it's a great way to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there more touring in the future for you? I want to. Um, one thing I'd like to do is with the growth of all the clubs in China, uh, now there's a big club, of, like dance, you know, dance clubs in pretty much all the big cities so one thing i would like to do and i haven't done yet is purely like dj and and tour that way mm-hmm. um obviously not having to bring a bunch of equipment but still still play at some really nice clubs that i, I like so that's one thing i don't have anything booked at the moment but um definitely within like the next year or so i'd like to do a i'd imagine a, a now because you've been working which is nice, a uh, nice change from the pandemic. I'm not sure about your studio work, but like our work was sort of trashed for the last couple of years. Yeah. We had nothing going on, but uh, uh, going forward, re- recently been busy. Going forward, would you? W- is it a time thing or is it like uh, setting it up? I mean, you, you can fly to these places, right. take the evening flight, then you can take the morning flight back, mm-hmm. technically. Yeah. It's that easy to do in China. I mean, it's rough, mm-hmm. but you could do it if you it's want. It's definitely doable in the, the uh, fast train yeah is another option some of these places it's even quicker to take the train than the plane right. because of cancellations and stuff yeah but um no it's just a matter of setting it up and uh, making it work with the the actual work schedule yeah. and, and all that what about outside of china uh there's some places i would i'd really like to do a european tour and uh before the pandemic uh i really wanted to go to south africa because mm-hmm. i'm i'm influenced by a lot of stuff from South Africa, but you know, I have friends there, but I've never actually gone there. And one of the thing is like, I feel like you can do a lot from afar through like a looking glass, but um, you know, I just kind of, I feel like it'd be uh, another notch of things I want to do is like actually go there and learn a little bit more about like their scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm, you know, from afar, like, interested in that that's cool this artist is cool but like there's a lack of connection of actually having actually been there right um but you're in china yeah I mean, there's some credibility <laughs> being in china you survived the pandemic in china right yeah and that's another thing if i was trying to do what i've done here from america i'd have missed a lot of points that i found out there's a lot of people i've met here and a lot of experiences that i've had that i only could have done if i was here yeah so um i think that makes it a little more authentic could you ever go back to the States and do this? Oh, I mean, there's the, the skills that I have um, could be done anywhere. It's just having that, that client base and that, mm. that scene. So in my opinion, if I was to move anywhere else, it, it would be somewhere that has a, a vibrant music scene and has people that I can bounce off ideas and work with. So Have um, you looked? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've considered places. Vancouver is a, a place that I've thought about. I know it's not America, but North America. Yeah. Um, I'm from New Orleans, which is a music city. Yeah, huge. But um, 
what I found about New Orleans is that uh, it's a it's a it's still a really small city, and it's still a city that's kind of set in its um, its legacy of uh, being the birthplace of jazz and and having a lot of that style of music. But as far as like new and modern things, there, of course there are people doing it. But when I was uh, living there uh, in 2008, um, I just felt like I didn't maybe know the right people and I didn't feel like it was what I had expected it to be. Um, whereas uh, places, of course, like Brooklyn and Austin and Portland and Los Angeles, these are going to be much more vibrant as far as American music cities. Mm. And I feel like New Orleans, sadly, is my hometown, but sadly, it's just a little behind in some ways. And of course, I haven't been there in 15 years. I haven't lived there. Really? Well, I haven't lived there in 15 years. Um, but uh, it's so it'd be it'd be poor of me to talk about the scene. But uh, just in general, I mean, like anywhere that has something going on, I feel like I could I could drop in, make new contacts and do what I'm doing here in Beijing pretty much anywhere that has music. I have two questions about uh, the music creation process uh, that uh, I, I don't know how well you can answer these, but uh, it's it kind of silly, kind of not. One of them is actually very pertinent, but one of them, I don't know, given the, the current sort of hubbub uh, regarding ChatGPT, there's nothing like that for uh, uh, music, is there? I don't think. You can't uh, punch in notes and be like, give me a new you new like direct like auto drummer basically for piano or for guitar easy bass would that be an easy guitar maybe i think it it, it there's already generative ai that can make music really? there has been for a little while uh it's not as uh it's not as um user widely friendly. used right but this is yeah i was i mean I, I see stuff every once in a while popping up on this uh for me AI is, is a tool to help you. And there's a lot of times when I'm in the studio, especially doing creative compositions, where you're wasting a lot of time thinking about what you want to do. And um, maybe that the position that AI is going to have in the future with electronic music, it's, I don't think that it's going to completely like, erase like the producer or the artist, but it's going to make their job easier. Um, I, yeah. I feel like there's, we're already using quite a lot of AI in certain aspects of music, um, in like music, what? well, in music research and the platforms are using quite a lot of AI to create algorithms. Right. Um, in the software you mentioned earlier, the, um, the, uh, isotope, yeah. they have, uh, ad adaptative, um, uh, AI in there to like give you a, a base setup of what your, your settings can be. When you start a file, it might listen to a reference track and like, you know, calculate what your settings should be. That's a form of AI in a way. It's the, how the software is working. But when you when you compare it to what a lot of people know about, uh, like Midjourney or Chat GPT, where you give them prompts and then they produce something, mm -hmm. I think this is something that uh, it, it exists in audio and it's going to make things a lot easier um, for people, especially people that are doing composition. Uh, you get stuff from clients that might be very vague. It might be referencing other things. You might spend a lot of time trying to grasp on the what that client wants. Whereas, like if you know the right prompts, you might be able to get a good starting point, mm -hmm. and then add your your emotion and your creative part in there. Yeah. So, um, do you use a lot of AI stuff? 
um, in, in what in, in some way i don't personally use so much i do use a lot of the uh like starting point stuff like in in isotope software you can use some adaptative right stuff to uh to give you like you know a starting point where maybe problems are like how to go so i might use that as you know the first thing and then tweak it from there but mm -hmm. i don't I don't particularly use anything where I'm prompting a software to create something for me, but I can definitely see how it's a time saver and would be yeah, a it. tool. Uh, there's uh, in terms of creating soundtracks, I've, uh, my, my big go-to now has actually been GarageBand on my iPhone okay. where I put in a drum track and then either strings or like a, a, a keyboard. And then I use the FX thing, that little, like the two boxes of it, it says FX in the corner, you mm -hmm. press that and it, you have these little faders and stuff yeah. like that. I, cause I'm just creating 12 to 15 second clips right. for some videos. I love it. It's fantastic. I mean, that's, that is beautiful. Yeah. Not AI, but the fact that you can get the drummer to play on time right. <laughs> uh, and change it on demand and then have the piano or the strings played as well on demand wonderful i mean yeah. so and I, I can only imagine that there's other musicians out there who are like finally the technology has caught up to the way that i think and the speed that i need to work at because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who have hard drives full of stuff going just need the time you know i just right. gotta do this but now like ai makes it a lot easier it's like well the only thing this track needs is this and you can create some even just a rough track to uh, mm -hmm. uh get going a little bit faster on uh, your your finalized product, I guess. So right, uh, but uh, AI. So you don't think AI is going to replace us anytime soon in terms of our creativity? I think it's going to do some the things that we're doing already and make it better. And I think certain jobs are going to go away. Mm -hmm. That's just natural. Um, but it's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's not like we're going to just stop using AI because we have this technology. We're naturally uh, curious primates and we're going to keep making things mm -hmm. so AI is you know here might as well embrace it but do the primates create electronic pipa music sure yeah <laughs> why not well if, <laughs> I guess if we we're all considered lumped in together yes possibly yeah. uh 70 20 10 uh so this is uh, I don't know if you've heard of that another American uh came up with this idea of a, of a January challenge a song a day challenge i don't know if you've heard of it oh, okay. uh and uh and given that you've produced and released so many albums over uh the years um and we're, we mentioned about you know what it, what makes an album um every january for the last two three years i've been doing this where i create a song a day okay. and the, the philosophy being that 70 percent of the stuff that you do is going to be complete garbage 20 percent is going to be okay 10 percent is going to be good okay in your own work do those numbers make sense? Where would they change? And does that at all sort of apply to what you do in terms of your own EPs and your, your music? So um, I think that these these are pretty good percentages to start with. Um, but I don't know if I can go that like to the decimal on them. Um, what I think is important is that you the more you do something, the more the more that you're going to find what is good and bad. Um, a lot of times with with writer block writer's block or just not knowing what to do, um, it's hard to just say okay, sit down and do it. And I think like this this kind of attitude is is useful because usually when you when you take when you when you show up and you actually do it, 
you start rolling. Even sometimes I'm just not feeling it at all, but I just make myself do something, some some basic beat. I might just trigger wanting to 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 open up another file and and you know start creative, mm-hmm. start the creative process. So uh, I like these little challenges. Like they they make people you know do something rather than just sitting on something. So yeah, I think the percentages they make sense. When do you think an idea is done? Or when when for you is an, an idea done? Like one of the, these hard drives of partial tracks, when are they done? People say it's it's uh it's never over, but I think it's over when you hate it. I agree. Right. With the podcasting, I, I just go <laughs> fuck it, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and I'm joking, obviously. It's not that I, I hate the stuff I'm doing. It's it's just you reach a point where um there's only uh, so much you can do i think you could go on forever especially with uh the, the state we live in with digital uh you know computers and everything where where just it's it's infinite so when something's done is just there's there's a point where it's just like okay this is good enough and it's hard to describe what that is but uh you just sometimes you just gotta call it just say <laughs> this is this is where it is i mean when, when do you normally call it? When have you found that you've called it? You're like, that's it. That's done. Tap out. Hmm. When I can listen to something and kind of get distracted and then it doesn't, my, my attention doesn't get jolted back to the music. Right. So if I've listened to it enough times, I'm listening for any imperfections, any unsmooth transitions, any uh, parts that just don't gel with the idea that I have. And when it starts to become when it starts to feel like a song or a piece of music for that, that's when it's finished for me. So I might have a, a rough sketch of an album and then I'll like do some laundry. And as I'm doing, it, I'm separated from the music and then like something will be like, well, that wasn't right. That no, doesn't sound yeah. good. <laughs> so that's kind of like, uh, towards the final stages of the, the piece being finished. If I'm, if I'm not being distracted mm-hmm. by the music and it's just like, kind of feels like I'm putting on music, then that's kind of where I can be like, okay, it's, where it's where it should be which i guess makes sense because if you're listening to music that isn't distracting then that's decent really right, like, right. Then, then you're not obsessing over like what this track is terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> whether yeah. it's spotify or your own or whatever um yeah i, I guess so it's a the, the sickening factor i think is when it's like fuck it i can't do it anymore i don't want to look at this i don't want to think of this anymore right. press publish just press play i uh, just get it done because i don't want to think of it anymore mm-hmm. which is typically how i publish a lot of my podcasts uh, and, sure. and videos but in terms of like this january challenge that one again learning pro, uh, logic pro and music production and movie production it's been i love that challenge it actually starts a bit at the beginning of december where i start making a drum track per day mm-hmm. and then january is a song a day so there's a different focus but yeah it's uh, it's been good in terms of making two three minutes it can be 15 minutes but you have to do something mm-hmm. each and every day have you ever done anything like that before or um so i haven't joined any of like the the like official challenges where or like uh collab things with with other people where you're like doing a competition or something like that but i have given myself some uh some like guidelines mm-hmm. uh there was a month where i went to the studio a little bit earlier every day and instead of doing my work immediately i um had like a concept of of what i what i was going to like do as far as an album and i just spent 30 minutes on that before i started any work mm-hmm. and by the end of it i had like eight things that i thought were kind of cool 
and I sent them to another friend of mine, and we actually made an album based on it. Wow. So um, not having that and just like maybe saying, hey, let's let's collab on something that can fall apart really easy. But giving myself a, a, a fixed time and say, I'm only going to do this. It's not going to be an uh, open-ended book. It's like 30 minutes and then you're done. It doesn't matter where you are on it. Just something might be good. Like yeah. you were saying the 20% might be good and then 10% might be really good. So it's just about, yeah, that sort of thing. And sometimes that's helpful in, in finishing something, giving yourself a deadline or giving yourself a constraint, limiting yourself. This, yeah, can be... Mm-hmm can be uh useful now to the meat of the podcast all right china and chinese you are uh, you've been here since 2008 right 2009, 2009 is when i when i came to china and you are street taught chinese language or at least that that's those are my words but you're fluent right uh, I, I guess mostly sure and i mean yeah yeah i guess in terms of fluency you work in the chinese language sometimes yeah, I've, I've a lot of my clients. We it's Chinese. I mean, phone call comes in English or Chinese. No, doesn't matter. Your deal. You can take the call. It de- yeah. It depends on what the the, uh, the their level is and which language they want to communicate in. Chinese. Yeah, I mean, I I would say with most of my foreign contacts, it's English. Yeah, it's going to be weird to to speak in Chinese. <laughs> if there's no reason for us not to, but not all of my Chinese clients um, speak want to speak Chinese, they want to also, their, their English might just be as good enough and mm. why not use that? It's just a tool to communicate. Uh, I didn't always used to be as, you know, comfortable doing this in Chinese, but it, it, it took being involved in the music scene and playing in bands with Chinese members and I was like, oh, this is a whole new set of vocabulary I have to learn. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just simple equipment terms and verbs for music and like all this stuff, like, What's some, what's some terminology, <laughs> uh, music terminology that you've picked up? Uh, well, you know, early on, it's just how we we in English use the word the verb play for for instruments. War. Yeah, yeah. In, but in, in, which, in, how does it change in Chinese? They uh, for a wind instrument they use the, the blow chui, and okay. for drums they use hit da. Okay. And for strings is tan, which is like a strum. And we have them in English, but uh, there it's just like you slowly learn like little things like that, and then uh, there's a lot of you know just vocabulary that I picked up by playing in bands. And then so when I wanted to to go on to you know record with clients or work with directors that didn't speak English, I had some basis of uh, Chinese music vocabulary that helped out. And they and, and a lot of times it, they might feel a little more comfortable that. They don't have to like go in a translator and talk to me. I can just use the experience language I know. Yeah. Now, just because I I know a lot of like music terminology, if you want me to talk about other subjects in Chinese, I might not. I might fumble around and sound like you know I'm just arrived, you know, just a new arrival <laughs> to China. Uh, so I don't know. It's I'm, I live in China, so I think I should speak Chinese, and so that's why I have made it a. A point to learn it. but there's been a lot of successful uh expats maybe not successful in relatively relative terms that have not learned the language to your ability and are, wouldn't be able to pick up the phone yeah. it's usually like girlfriend uh can you right. help me oh, totally. dealing with the delivery boy <laughs> oh totally and and i think that's just the the it has to do a lot with the industry that you're in i have 
I have friends in the music industry that have have like passable Chinese. Mm-hmm. They rely on on English still, and it's just it just depends on how far you want to do it. I think language always opens the door. Um, it makes things a little bit easier uh, if you can can speak the language. But if you're relying just on English, it doesn't mean you can't be successful. It just means that you're going to miss out on a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and a lot of understanding and rely on other people. I, I don't always want to have to rely on someone to translate for me. Or a cell phone that would break the momentum as well. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, how did you learn Chinese? Did you study it before you came here? So I was... Uh, my my major in university was foreign languages and literature. Oh. But my, my concentration was in Spanish. Part of the department's credit system was that you had to take a few other languages as well yeah so i took like two two uh credits of french you know if i was spanish french pretty pretty interchangeable in some things because they're romance languages and then i saw chinese and i was like that'll be cool that'll be cool to learn and i started taking it and it was a self uh self-taught class and you could go to the classes or you couldn't and so i went I, i would go try to go as many as i could um, but I was taking so many other like, Spanish classes at the time; it was uh, quite difficult. So I, I didn't really, I didn't really give the right amount of respect and attention to to Mandarin. But I passed the class with like, uh, I don't know, maybe like a C or something, like sixty-one percent. <laughs> yeah, and um, I, it was a final verbal exam, and 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 I remember saying I knew the word like one to three. I knew how to say little sister and like thank you, goodbye, and I don't know. Those are like the words I knew, and I still I passed the class. Um, so I I I never thought I would come to China, and I um, I said, well, you know, Mandarin, whatever. Yeah, I know it's a growing language, and it's gonna be important in the future. But uh, I just was really focused on going to Spain and, and doing more with Spanish. So um, you went to Spain though. I I did a short uh, study abroad in Mexico. Oh, okay. Um, but I've never, I've never been to any other Spanish speaking countries. Um, so when, um, it came time to start looking for jobs, um, I was sending out all these resumes to places in Mexico and Argentina and Chile. And then, um, a friend of mine was like, have you thought about maybe just applying to, to China? Cause there's a lot of jobs there. And, um, when was this? This was in 2008. Okay. And I found an English teaching job. Surprise, surprise. Right. And I mean, <laughs> also, I didn't really understand that there was such a big education sector in China. Mm-hmm. But it made, it made one of the guy here, it made total sense. So um, I was like, well, that, that might be a nice little thing I could do for a year and then I'll go somewhere else. And um, it was just really a nice transition, like flights and accommodation and healthcare and all that stuff was like taken care of by the company. And I didn't have that in America. Yeah. So I and if you went to South America, the, those contracts are very different down there. Oh yeah, well. and the pay was a lot less, and you're not you're not ma- making bank down there. No, but it's it's a nice experience, and so um, that's basically. So when I want to answer your question about how I learned Chinese, this long backstory. When I got here, I was in a, the city of Ningbo, and not a lot of people that I knew spoke English, and I was very curious, and I wanted to go out and see as much and. I just put myself every day in a situation where nobody spoke English. I had a notebook. There was no smartphone. Um, Were you writing pinyin or Chinese characters? Well, pinyin at first. Yeah. And then, well, first, just like English 
yeah. <laughs> like uh, what I thought it sounded like. And I learned Pinyin and the tones. I still don't really know my tones, but you know. Right. Um, but like, so you're on the street talking to some lady and a situation that you don't know their language. Right. What are you writing down? Like, you, well, because I, the, how, at what point do you know what they're, they're actually talking about? Well, and she's uh, not just agreeing with you to be nice to a foreigner. I was actually, you know, in Ningbo, I didn't know what was Mandarin and what was Ningbonese. That was another thing. Because <laughs> okay. they speak another language down there that's more similar to, uh, j uh, not Japanese, but it's uh, Shanghainese. And mm -hmm. that, that it's, a it's a different language. It's not dialect. It's a different language. So I was hearing all kinds of different, you know, words that were somewhere Ningbonese, somewhere Mandarin. And I, and I also had a, uh, you know, a book and I, I started talking to my Chinese colleagues and I put stuff together and I, and I would practice writing stro you know, like my, my, my Chinese characters, I would sit down and, and try to write them so I could at least recognize them. I'm still not great at writing, but I can recognize. Okay. Yeah. Um, writing the characters helps a lot in character recognition and radicals, uh, pronunciation as well. I found just overall, you need to write it as well. Yeah. So that, that was it. It was just like I would go to a restaurant and I'd, I'd go make sure I would go to one restaurant at least once a week and talk to the same person and soak up what I could. And it was around the two-month mark. I was with my roommate and we were drinking beer in a restaurant and the, the guy knew us and he came over and was like, so what are you guys doing this weekend? And we're like, oh, we're going to Nanjing. We're going to like, we're going to, and then like I remember leaving the restaurant and being like, we just had a conversation with the, the guy <laughs> In, all in Chinese and um, and I was like I'm learning I'm learning Mandarin now like and I just used that mentality to always put myself in a situation that might be a little uncomfortable I might not be super understanding of what everything was going on but I would learn stuff and that's how I learned Chinese not really through a classroom I did you know take some classes to like help um, boost myself a little bit for like the HSK and stuff mm -hmm. like that did later, you ever do the HSK? So later on, I did the HSK, but it was about 2012. And well, uh, you did three, four. Which I did, one did? I did uh, HSK. The, the the numbering system's different now, but it was a, it would be but at HSK that time what, four okay, about that, right? Because my plan was to go to a university here, and you need HSK six, or you did at the time. I'm not sure. So I was I was doing it a little bit. That that helped me a lot with reading. Mm -hmm. just studying for the hsk and i continued to study for hsk five and six after that but i never went and took the right. exams i hear this a lot a lot of people get to hsk five and they always want to mm -hmm. but then it's like your your language is decent enough at that right. point you're communicating unless you absolutely have to learn hsk six level mm -hmm. you're not going to ever do it well it's difficult to make yourself do it yeah but i mean uh where I kind of like feel a bit con conflicted with uh, with Chinese and Mandarin right now because um, I'm at that point where I can communicate it on a basic level. Um, I use it as a communication tool, but it's pretty much lost all of like the the luster the uh, of like um, I'm not super interested in in like the language outside of it being a communication tool okay so uh, when when i was studying spanish i was like man i just love the way it it sounds and the culture around it and the um you know like like stuff like that i was super interested in it linguistically that's really important and uh now after 15 years of, of studying chinese <laughs> 
uh, well, it's not studying, but being around it, mm -hmm. I associate it with a necessity of life here. And um, for me, it's like, I don't feel too compelled to like open up a book of idioms and learn them. You know, maybe you have one here, which <laughs> which is a shame because it's like, it, it means that my, my Chinese will kind of stay where it is right now and I'll learn yeah. things along the way. But I don't feel that that push as I used to, to like continue linguistically to like make my Chinese better. If yeah. you learn the idioms, like how would, then you'd sound like them. Because <laughs> uh, you'd make generalizing, <laughs> sweeping, generic statements, and you're going, yes, that's right, but can we deal with the situation as it specifically is right now, not a grand 5,000 years of history sort of bird's eye view of it? Yeah, uh, th that's what I, my my takeaway from learning idioms is, is that they're very life-teaching mm -hmm. sort of, yes, you're right, but it doesn't really solve the problem that we have here. I mean... Are there any idioms that you like, actually? Have you, you've learned at least a few, I would say. Um, so I guess my, um, my favorite Chinese idiom is Gong Bao Ji Ding. Okay. <laughs> the food. Um, no, but it's, it's just, you know, you have to have four, yes. really four ones. No, I mean, I don't know super, like a lot of them, but um, like the last really... I guess interesting one is um, it, I don't know if it's an idiom or not, but it's chernar bunar. Uh, some might argue it's, eat where yeah not not be bu as in to to grow that thing grow like, there so you eat there you grow there yeah so what it means is um, like if you eat uh, uh, if you eat uh, you're eating a fish right and you go to the the eyes. If you eat the eyes, it's good for your eyes. Oh, yes. Which gets into the whole like animal medicine sort mm -hmm. of uh, ideology. Yeah. I mean, that's just a ridiculous one. And then there's like the ones you learn when you first get here that are always fun, like people mountain, people sea, oh, like, yeah. Ren Shan, Ren Hai, just stuff like this. But um, I feel like I haven't really done a lot with Chinese idioms. Like I still probably, probably a lot of it goes over my head. And it would be helpful to understand what actually people mean when they say something instead of making my own assumption. Well, I guess it'd be good for um, job openings and job closings. Like sort of like when you first meet someone, I guess that's when you'd use your idioms, mm -hmm. your chung yu and stuff like that. HSK5, you don't do so many of them that HSK6, I looked at the textbooks and yeah, it's like a lot of, there's a lot of four character yeah, words and uh, setups and sentences. Formulaic language. Mm -hmm. We have it in English. We drop oh, yeah. them all the time. Sure. And it's funny because as, as an ESL instructor, People are talking about, like, kids want to learn about the, like, student learners want to learn about the idiomatic language. How does native say it? And when you hear uh, natives speak, you hear chunks. We're so used to it. Mm -hmm. And I guess Chinese people are used to the, the chung yu the same way. Uh, but the way that we collocate certain words, the, the one that stood out was a month full of Sundays. I was like, okay, that's a very specific idiom, but uh, I've never heard it before. I'm right. like, I don't even know how you would drop that into a conversation. Right. That's a specific example, but there are formulaic chunks that we use all the time in English mm -hmm. that to a language learner, they're going, how do you, what's the rule behind using that right. sentence yeah. as that mm -hmm. in that way? And you're going, I have no idea. We just say it that way. Mm -hmm. So like the whole formulaic chunk, I have no idea. Wouldn't that be an idiomatic language of some sort, some formulaic language? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So. Yeah, it's it's got to be, uh, luckily, uh, you and I come from English-speaking countries, so we just get it uh, natively. Uh, I 
I can imagine what it's like to study other languages because I have, but to study English as a non-native speaker is super, I think, I don't know. Complex. It's a whole yeah. dumb language. I mean, it's <laughs> thrown together. I mean, it I, takes from everything and it, it conjugates verbs weird and everything. And people ask for rules and I go, I don't know. They change all the time. They do. And even, I don't think Americans really speak it as it is intended to be but well there is a whole other nation that would say you're right right <laughs> <laughs> you you've bastardized that language pretty badly um what brought you to, brought you to china in the first place was it just work or was it uh, anything else work made it easier it made the transition easier what but... were you getting paid back then oh wow <laughs> i was on probation because i just started okay so it was five thousand a month renminbi yeah which i thought was good um, and then I got, after the third month, I got 6,000. Okay. I just thought it was weird that I was on probation, but I didn't do anything bad. I was just new and I got yeah. paid less, but yeah, it was, that was it. And you were like kind of urged not to do any other work. So, um, like tutoring and stuff. Tutoring. So I did some tutoring and at that time <laughs> I was really happy to get. So I did it yeah. anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's just like you had two extra days, like uh, I think Sunday and Mondays I was off. So I had yeah. like two extra days. And, and all, the, all the parents and the kids are asking you anyway to tutor them. It's like, but your boss just told me don't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Although his kids are right here asking me to be, to asking to tutor them as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the hourly rate, I think it was like someone... I remember asking for 120 and thinking and like feeling bad because it was too much. And now it's like to, private tutoring is ridiculously way more expensive than that. But the, everything was a lot cheaper too. I mean, yeah. I feel like an old man being like in my day. You know, well, Ningbo especially. Yeah. I mean, not not Beijing. Beijing, the prices have gone up quite a bit. No, um, I mean, like it was pretty cheap. Is taxi started at like nine kwai at that right. time and. Um, you know, I, I remember my cell phone and I hardly ever topped it up. You know, it's just like I put a hundred on and, I, and then like a few months later, I was like, oh, I need to put money on again. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, it was it was cheaper. So that money getting paid that much was was fine. And I wasn't sending money back home to pay for like student debt or anything or like. Lucky you. I, yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was enough money at the time. And now, like, you know, there's a lot more. You know that you you know, more like future focused and like you thinking about things. So uh, you know, like even though the pay has gone up and and that sort of thing, like this, it's still a more expensive China than it used to be. Mm -hmm. What's been the biggest change that you've seen uh, in your time here? Fifteen years. That's that's Olympics, Beijing Olympics. Um, right after the, I came right after. So okay. everyone was like, oh, it was so different before the Olympics, but I had no basis for it. Um, I came. The big thing when I came was the uh, Shanghai exhibition. That was okay. the big one. When was that? It was 2000, like it was 2009, 2010, I think. Okay. Somewhere around there. The biggest one is the, the, the switch to everything being digital, like digital payment and stuff. WeChat and Alipay. Um, I've seen a, a, a change in um, the, like, the education industry for sure. Like all that private teaching that was really stressed there was a lot of opportunities in mm -hmm. that private schools i feel like maybe uh you know that's gone away a little bit that has gone away <laughs> yeah um i've also felt that uh one one big thing is like when i first got here it was a lot of if people were 
I think people have mm, maybe become less internationally focused, if I could say that. Like, not that they're not that they don't see the value of the international community in many industries. It's that there's more of a uh, uh, more of a a pride in like the domestic market as being good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've seen. So I guess I should say that I've seen China building itself more in, the, in these last couple of years, rather than it kind of looking to other countries as a benchmark. It's kind of like focusing more mm-hmm. uh, on itself as already being good enough. Has that been a good thing for the country? Like in, in what you've seen for the, the people, their development, their opportunities? I feel like there needs to be some sort of blend. Mm-hmm. There definitely needs to be a, uh, you know, an outward thinking and uh, like, you know, you need to be aware of, you know, what's going on and uh, it, it can't always be just about one thing. So I think a blend of things is good. Um, so uh, in a lot of ways, okay, in music, let's talk about that. People would complain, well, this band is just copying this this foreign band, right? So they're just trying to look at the foreign bands and copy it. And why can't more bands be like themselves here? But then when more bands are themselves, it's like, well, they're just focusing on China and they're not thinking about the world. And I've I've uh, I think that there's there's merit to both of it. So uh, I guess like in this regard, like could China ever have a Taylor Swift or I think, an I think Iron China Man? China has like six Taylor Swifts right now. But, but outside of China, they're not known. They're not known. Right. So like, here you can hear every day I hear Taylor Swift mm-hmm. uh, or Iron Man or Tony Stark, like those names, Hollywood, um, sort of his name dropping and stuff like that. But like, can China ever achieve that sort of same sort of global cultural soft power or presence, I should say? Not even soft power, just presence. Yes, I think it can. Um, but... It's just it's time you know it takes time and, and and i don't think it's fair to to compare like what a another country has done and say well why can't china do that it's going to do something in a different way mm-hmm. uh, and in a lot of ways people from abroad if we're thinking about like positive soft soft power or yeah just soft power um there's a lot of things that china's already known for China Jones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one. Right. <laughs> Gong Bao Ji Ding. Yeah, that's pretty, um, pretty, pretty big uh, export, isn't it? I, you can get that just mm-hmm. about in any Chinatown around the world. Right. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a succulent dish. It's very, very good. Do you see yourself staying here for a long time? Uh, my, my answer has like varied throughout the years. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm not going to be here forever. My, my family's back home. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I think the pandemic changed a lot of the way that I looked at it and how, how it was, was here for, you know, how, you know, China was a different case than the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. how it dealt with it. I mean, um, that, that definitely influenced like how, you know, uh, I want to spend the next part of my life. So I'm definitely going to be, I think like here for another two years or so, but I've said that many times. For the last 15 years, last 13 years, I guess. Right. Um, and I think one one thing that's stopping me is that uh, you know I, I don't I don't really own any property here, right? Uh, Other than your studio equipment and everything. Yeah, that kind of stuff. But that uh, my plan is to like ship all that when I, when I leave, sell things. But you know um, that's that's something like if you want to build a you know a base and you know 
have things, you know, property is important, but, uh, storage locker. Yeah. You know, <laughs> a house is a glorified storage locker. Right. Yeah. And then like, you know, relationship wise, I'm, I'm not, um, with someone that's from, from China. So you, she's from Singapore. Singapore. I've heard good things about right. Singapore though. Would you ever consider that? I'm putting you on the spot here. She's no, no, no like, listen to this. Uh, <laughs> you know, not to get too, into too much of my personal life, but I've always liked Singapore a lot. Um, it's one of the countries when you asked me earlier, if I thought about other places to live, um, you know, that's one place I think it's got a lot going for it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so yeah, that's one thing. So will I be in China for the rest of my life? The answer is no. Um, but I, I definitely want to have a good time and make the best of it while I'm here. What would, what would it take to get you out of here? Like what, what would make you leave? I mean, you survived the pandemic. Yeah. That was a big one. You have a business. Mm. I mean, global travels going again yeah uh you know it's a family you know there's gonna be a time where i'm gonna take care of of my my parents oh, okay. that's a big one uh and i'm not also like stuck to china it's just where the opportunity is yeah if if i could be doing the same thing in another country i would definitely do it and you know maybe it's getting closer to that time mm -hmm. well i mean i know some uh elder older guys who they have the green card. Do you have a green card? Or are no, you... I don't. I have oh, okay. a, a right. Zed visa. Right. So, like, some of them have green cards. I'm not sure what happens that if they're over 60 or 65 and it expires, if they can renew it. Mm -hmm. But I know uh, that some of them are, like, it, it would take old age and near death to basically remove them from mm -hmm. China. They just won't go. So, uh, I, I don't know. It... Is China a good place? Like, would you recommend someone to come to come to China? I've, I've asked this to uh, to other people who've been here for a long time. What do you think? Without sounding like an old head, because it, it was always it's always going to be better when you got there. Mm -hmm. It's all relative. So it's not the China that I came to now. That it, that China is no longer here. It's a different China. So would I recommend you to come here based on what I thought of it in the past? No, but everyone makes their own experience and it's there's no there's no reason why coming here now you can't have a, a good time and a, a memorable uh experience i mean i think that if you want to come here i recommend it but come with the idea that um it might not be easy mode all the time mm -hmm. you know and there might be stuff that's amazing and great and you might get some awesome opportunities but uh, there's going to be a lot of days that are going to be difficult. It's, <laughs> it's it's a country, especially for people who don't speak the language and from a different culture, where it can be it can be a difficult place to live. But it's just about how much you want to put into it. Do you think someone could replicate what you did, uh, moving to Ningbo, small town, small town, a couple million, smaller, and make a go of it, or would they have to learn Chinese before? Uh, I'm not special in any way i just just put in the grunt work and like i i had i was lucky <laughs> you know in a lot of ways i was lucky and i and i consistently did things so you know if someone comes here i didn't know much chinese if they want to come here and and focus on that and, and do it it's definitely possible it's just just about how much you want to put into it and how lucky you are but someone couldn't survive in china without learning chinese outside of the big cities it'd be very difficult You'd you'd be you it would be yeah it'd be hard. You'd be um, at the sort of the, the the mercy of your girlfriend or whoever you sort of start dating. Yeah, and think about that girlfriend or that partner. They're not gonna want to be your translator all the time. Yeah, they're not gonna want to do everything for you. 
So you could be here, but you're going to have a hard time. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be easy. What's been the greatest thing you've experienced and what's been the worst thing you've experienced? Um, greatest things. I mean, it's just the, the ability to, to travel and see things. And uh, I had, uh, during the pandemic, I had a great opportunity to work on a documentary um, with National Geographic oh, neat. as a host. And I got to go to um, Mogao Caves in uh, Dunhuang. Yeah. So that was really cool. And I think that was something I might not have been able to do anywhere else. It was a special situation. It was the middle of the pandemic. So no foreign uh, crews could come. No hosts could come. I was just here and recommended by someone. Hmm. That was one of the, like, the, you know, one of the best like projects I've worked on, like as far as like the experience I got from it. Um, and, you know, not to be super negative, I mean, there's been lots of things that have happened, but um, like the thing that just that gets to me, it's more of a consistent thing. It's just like the kind of xenophobia. Yeah, it's um, still there, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's something that is uh, going to happen when you're an outsider anywhere. Mm -hmm. I obviously didn't experience being the way that I look and the way that I am from, from America never experience this sort of thing and then you know it's not that bad here but when it's like you know over 15 years the culmination of many instances that's my least mm. favorite thing about living here is that uh, the small number of individuals who are extremely xenophobic that don't represent the general population but those people um have made some uh uncomfortable and less uh favorable experiences in china mm -hmm. do you think that will change going forward will more 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 or less people be xenophobic and more people be a little bit more although they might not know english they'll be like okay yeah foreigners great whatever i don't think it's connected to uh class or um education i think that people have a certain way that they react to people that are not like them just inherently uh as what they're they're kind of taught and told to be. So I think the more that, okay, so without a doubt, China's developing and it's becoming a prosperous nation and, and it's, um, it's improving in a lot of ways. Uh, that doesn't exclude it from, from still having bigotry. And, and, uh, I mean, that's, a, it's an individual thing as well. So I'm not saying it's the entire population, but it's, there's definitely certain people who just, you know, they don't like things for a certain reason. And, I think you're going to experience that anywhere you go. Final question. Uh, you So you're a street-learned uh, Chinese learner, speaker, yeah. language uh, aficionado, uh, expert. Uh -huh. What's your favorite character? My favorite character. Do you have one? Yes, it's a character. Um, is Biang. Is, is that favorite. the one with 37 different components to it? It's like, yeah, it's one that's really hard. There's a whole story behind it from Biang Biang Mian. Uh, is it my favorite character just because it's complicated? Okay. I don't know. Maybe a, a, a more uh, serious answer. <laughs> like, what's my favorite character? Um, I don't know. I don't think I have a particularly favorite one. Do any characters yeah. stand out, like sort of a most memorable character that you, you met? You met? Mm. There are certain ones that I just think I think are visually pleasing. But uh, 
I know. I like I like the character for um for for peace. Um, on ping on mm-hmm. on and ping on is quite nice. Um, and then just like yeah, I don't know. I don't really think think about them too much. Is because I, they're the simplified characters. I think are are great for reading and learning Chinese, but not as interesting as the the, the traditional characters. Have you tried the traditional characters to make a go of that? Uh, I I mean I did a little bit of um, study of, of Japanese, so you got to learn them oh, there yeah. for that. And then traveling through places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, you're going to see them, so you recognize some. But they they they're just like way I think visually more pleasing. You know, it's like there's a lot more to them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think it's if I'm not mistaken, the uh, character for love in simplified, and and traditional, there might be. Uh, Sheen, the character the for heart, heart is inside the traditional, traditional one, but, but not in the simplified. They yeah. took the heart out. I, 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 someone might want to check me on that, but yeah, we'll have to verify stuff, that. Stuff like that, that where I think uh, to make it, uh, there's a reason they made them simplified. It's easier to to teach a bunch of people how to use it, communicate better. I get it, but um, as far as like how it looks visually, the traditional is always going to be nicer. Hmm. All right. Uh, where can people find you to uh, troll you, to uh, download your music, and to uh, seek your um, services? Well, the place I recommend everyone to check out is Bandcamp, but I'm on Apple Music and Spotify. Uh, for Chinese platforms, if you're in China and listening to this, uh, uh, NetEase and QQ are where I mostly put up my stuff. Wow, QQ. QQ. Mm-hmm. Wow, that dates you. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, it's actually I mean, still a, uh, a player that pe- some people use, but... Yanetis or Wangyi Yuyun is the Chinese for it, and um, I'm on your your usual uh, social media ones. You just type in throughout in and you'll find me. Right now, mm-hmm. throughout in T R T H R U, right through and then out O U T I N. I am all in one word. Yeah, appreciate it, dude. Thank you very much for taking the time. It's been great. And that's episode number 42 of the Steven Sersky Podcast. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. All the show notes and the tracks are available up on my website, stevensersky.com, under the podcast section. And of course, this episode is available to stream on all the major podcast outlets. Thanks again for taking the time. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll do this again. Have a good one. Bye-bye.